WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 377. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 4E at the Crown Plaza in Dayton, Ohio. Today's show is recorded on the 28th of May, 2019. Today's episode, hail cracks the windshield of a China Southern Airlines Airbus. Two Cessna jets suffer engine failure because of contaminated fuel, and a 105-year-old woman celebrates her birthday with a flying lesson. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 3. So get all settled in, tray tables and seatbacks in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 377 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. I'm Captain Jeff, a captain for a major legacy air carrier based in the U.S. of A. And it's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and we cover your awesome feedback. And then just regular feedback if we don't have any awesome feedback. And... Joining me today to help with that is from her lakeside studio in South Carolina. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot. She's like a genius, very smart, very attractive. I mean, she's the whole package. Her name, Dr. Steph. I don't know. Some of that may have been slightly exaggerated, but hey, I'll take the compliments. Thank you very much, Captain Jeff. Great to see you as always. Great to see you as well. And joining us from his studio in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current current captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Yes, two and a half days to go. In fact, not even that. Thanks very much indeed, Jeff. Lovely to be back on the show. Looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a good one by the looks of it. Yeah, just keep saying that over and over again. It might yeah. actually turn out to be true. And also, joining us from his studio near the Concord Covered Bridge in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater underwear photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, it's Captain Dana! Well, hello, guys. It's great to be back yet again and looking forward to uh, a abysmal and less than 50% show. No, <laughs> looking for a greater than 50% show. That's actually and looking pretty for a accurate. Great time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is funny and true. All right. Hello, everyone. Um, I always look so forward to meeting up with my good friends every week and these great people that we have with us in the live chat room. I even I haven't even opened up the chat room window, so I don't even know who's there. <gasps> I know Steve only Warren. the greatest people today. Well, of course, Ms. Piper, of course. Who? We told it, the uh, not Nick so great Anderson crowd to get lost. There. Nick Anderson. Oh, hey, Nick, Nick Anderson. Anderson. And, you know, we've had uh, Frank Chandler's there and Matt Cole and oh, Lane right. Street Neville's with us. Hi, Neville. Who? And uh, Neville mm-hmm. Bounds. Mm-hmm. Never heard of him. Yeah. 
So that's just a few of the uh, folks that we have. Well, they're all great people. And uh, one of these days, if you haven't joined us during the uh, live recording of this thing, you should do it because you'll really have a lot of fun with these fine people. Anyway, uh, here we are uh, recording episode 377 on the 28th of May, uh, 2019. I'm in Dayton, Ohio. Again, I was here a couple of weeks ago. Actually, was it, was it the last recording? Yeah, I think the last recording was uh, while I was here in Dayton, the uh, the home of the uh, Wright brothers. And that's as far as I'll go, Steph. Mm, so yeah. you won't get upset no, we, with me. We already started this conversation. but I know, but I didn't see. Actually, I, I actually am, am a little concerned for Dayton today, though. So hopefully. Yeah. So uh, why? Because of the tornadic activity? They had some, some pretty nasty storms and tornadoes last night come through the area. Um Several good friends of mine live in the area, and I've heard from all of them, and everyone is safe and sound and has their property intact. And I know that's very fortunate because a lot of people do not as of this morning. So True. Uh, when we were um, traveling from the airport to the downtown area where the hotel is located, uh, we uh, it was very slow going on Interstate 75 because of the, the areas that received uh, some tornadic damage. And uh, yeah. Pretty, uh, pretty devastating. Yeah, definitely. Thinking so, about you guys up there today if you're listening from the Dayton area. Yes, yes. Sorry for my dog sneezing in the background. You can hear that. Gesundheit. Gesundheit. Which one? Taco. Taco. Oh, Taco oh, always taco. wants attention. He's also, it's not growling, but he's like talking to Truman. Oh, uh-huh. he's saying. Like, Truman, no, just, just be quiet. She's recording, yeah. and yeah. Uh, you need to be quiet. Yeah. Okay. Except he does. He's not using his inside voice for that. No. Anyway, it's like the people, like of- the old men in church. I know. Like, quiet down over okay. there. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> you should use your whisper voice, your inside voice. No. Anyway. Okay. Well, uh, as I said, I'm um, on a trip, and I'm in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, this four-day trip, I, I I saw this, and I thought, oh, what an easy trip. First day is just one deadhead flight to uh, Chicago, and then the next day two legs. Next day two legs, and I think the last day we do three legs. But uh, so it looked like a pretty good four. Basically, to me, it looked like a three day trip with just a deadhead on the first. And uh, because of the weather, the aforementioned um, weather uh, that hit the Dayton area, it was in the Chicago area yesterday. And uh, it, it turned out to be a very, very long day. But I can't complain because I wasn't even flying. I was just riding as a passenger. By the way, there are people in this world that uh, are just very immature and um, don't quite understand the reality of like bad weather in the spring, summertime, and how it affects air travel. And when somebody like me in uniform uh, tries to explain it to them. They don't seem to want to hear my explanation of it. Very, very frustrating. So I ran into that a few times yesterday and I finally gave up and just went and hid somewhere. It's the modern world, Jeff. People aren't interested. Yeah. It was just clear to me that no matter what factual data I was going to give and logic and all that kind of stuff, it didn't matter. I'm, I'm two or three hours late. So logic, I'm, I'm, I'm upset. And nothing you say is going to make me happy. I went, okay, well, fine. Be that way then. All about me. 
already. Yeah. It's like big, giant adult toddlers. Mm-hmm. I don't know how the gate agents do it. I really do not. I have a I lot of I can't answer that question. No. Drugs? Uh, well, no. <laughs> Extreme patience. But if you ever stand, stand back and watch the gate agents, uh, especially of late, I've actually been noticing noticing it and uh, it's it it you have to put up some type of defense mechanism and i can see that the gate agents get a little frustrated with the same old questions over and over and over i never and you know as a as a gate agent myself i you know obviously didn't take my heads out my heads out of my my eyes out of my head and watch myself but you know when you ask get asked the same question over and over and over and over and over it gets a little irritating so um i think our, our gate agents in particular do a pretty pretty darn good job of, of handling those questions. But I think technology also helps out as well. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that I was going to use. I go, Hey, so Hey, this website you can go to and you can see that the CF, wow. If we left two hours ago, we wouldn't, we wouldn't even let me finish my sentence. I'm going, well, damn. Okay. Be that way then. I'm not going to give you. It's a me generate. Everything's about me, me, me. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, but not our community members. They're all good people that, uh, you know, understand reason and logic and understand this kind of stuff. So thank you for you all. Um, I don't want to dwell on that. Uh, it's time to talk about what the I'm starting by the way, with the, uh, getting caught up thing, because I feel like I want to do that. Um, my daughter, my youngest daughter, Natalie, she says, I'm your favorite one, dad. Um, she graduated from college from Elon university on Friday. And so I, at the last, uh, at the end of the last trip that I flew, uh, that was a Wednesday, I got home and the next day, uh, drove the car to Elon and Friday was her graduation ceremony. We had a great time. And, uh, Saturday was a lot of work and it was very, very hot in Elon, North Carolina. What was it Steph? Like 97 degrees or something ridiculous. It's been, I mean, at least since Thursday last week in the upper nineties here. Yeah, very uncomfortable. My watch says it's 96. My car was reading 102 on the way home. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. so my daughter had, you know, like this apartment, dormitory apartment thing, and she had all kinds of stuff that she had to get all packed up and taken to the cars. We had multiple vehicles to load up all of her stuff. And, uh, man, I thought I was going to pass out and just die. It was very, very hot. But we took care of that on Saturday and then uh, Sunday Morning, uh, still in Elon, but uh, was able to watch the uh, Formula One race. And then I got on the road, headed home, and uh, back out on a trip. Here I am. So that's your Captain Jeff update. Um, let's go next to Dr. Steph. <laughs> Sorry, she was about to put something in her mouth. <laughs> I also have a dog barking so loud in my ear right now. <laughs> They're behind. They're so cute. They're behind Dr. Seth playing on the couch. Yeah, yeah. They've been playing on the couch. And they have no other supervision right now. So you may want to start with um, Dana or Nick. And well, you think they're going to stop anytime soon? It might. Okay. Chances are okay. Dana, you haven't, uh, well, you were with us on the last program. So, or the last yes, show. Yes, I was. So, uh, and I know you were on, or you are still, probably still on vacation. And I am you were indeed. down in Florida. At the um, that crazy place with adults that have very high libidos, apparently. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> according to the news reports. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, well, we, uh, we, we, uh, well, I yeah, okay. say we, I, 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 <laughs> I uh, went down and saw my neighbors who have happened to own a uh, rental property down there, and they were down there prior to heading over to England, which they just ah, left there yesterday. You go. That's the problem. They're British. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kelvin is British. You've met Kelvin. Yeah. Uh, my, my buddy Kelvin. So they went over to England for a very nice visit, but they were down there for a month before they <laughs> went ahead and uh, traveled. So got to spend a few days there and it, it observed some uh, <clears throat> interesting activities going on in the squares. So <laughs> they have live music and they have, uh, you know, DJ and different types of activities going on. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> and and we, so we just had uh, hung around, we played this game called Pickleball. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that, but let me tell you what. It's basically a combination between ping pong and, and tennis. It's really a, 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 almost kind of like badminton, badminton, but it's not quite that. It's it's a basically a hard uh, almost like a wiffle ball, if anybody knows what a wiffle ball is, with holes in it, and you get a paddle, and you're on a on a very small court that looks just like a ping pong table, um, but it's it's uh, played like tennis, or very similar to it, uh, so it's a lot of fun. We uh, we got out there in the 90 plus degree heat, sweated a little bit, I mean a lot, and uh, had some fun with that, and then uh, left there and went to for Memorial Day weekend, and I. I must remiss, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that uh, thank you to the folks in uniform, both past, present, retired, and looking forward to going into the military for this service to our country, and especially those who have paid the ultimate price uh, to the uh, um, be lost in battle and or uh, in service to our country. So I mentioned uh, on my Facebook page. Um, I very rarely post on Facebook, but uh, I think you remember about a year and a half ago, I had the uh, opportunity to bring uh, Private First Class Pete Counter back into Grand Rapids, uh, and he was lost in the in 1942 in the Pacific Theater against the Japanese. So um, my Memorial Day, I put in honor of, of him. I posted. So that's all I've had going on. I went to, to Florida for uh, to springs um uh, silver glen springs which is off lake george just north of the orlando area south of just south and west of jacksonville area um had a great time uh, about five four to five hundred boats i'm guessing in the springs it was a it was a party weekend so um it was just a lot of fun i'm just gonna leave it at that because nothing involved flying i don't go back to work until what's this coming saturday oh, saturday nice. night Nice. So then I am on for six straight days and next month on reserve. So if you don't see my schedule out there, there's a reason because I have basically Friday, Saturday, Sundays off um, throughout the month of June. I was lucky to hold that. And I think everybody knows where I'll be on Saturdays for sure. Yeah. And most likely Sundays too. Just one on the lake. Just kind of flying right under, under the radar, right? You got it. Well, they're probably going to, I mean, we're, we're, we're we are. Uh, not short-staffed. I mean, we're not overstaffed this year. We're actually probably slightly understaffed, if anything. Mm -hmm. So on reserve, we'll be flying a whole lot more. Uh, and also, uh, there was a bit in AE. I don't know. I mean, it was very quiet. Not a whole lot of hoopla made of it because it was all FO positions, but I did put my bid in for the 717. So if they happen to award it, uh, I have my bid in now for the 717 captain seat. 
Ooh, nice. Very nice. So we'll, we'll see. Fingers crossed. Yeah, yes. good luck with that. Hey, yeah, I, it'd, be, uh, it'd be nice to have a little more seniority. Back. I flew on a mm-hmm. 717 yesterday on the Deadhead up from Atlanta to Chicago. Went up there, looked at the cockpit, talked to the captain, and uh, he uh, didn't try to talk me out of uh, flying it. He says, so, so would you be, uh, you know, somewhat senior? And I said, yeah, I'd be like number one, I think. <laughs> number one or number two, maybe. Anyway, uh, yeah, nice jet. Nice jet. Everybody seems they to be They send a lot of them to Charlotte these days, so uh, oh. maybe we'll see you okay, yeah. around these parts. Possibly, if I don't maybe. go to the 7576. Or Dana. Let's talk about or Dana. Dana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, okay. A yeah. Oh, more chance, yeah, definitely. She'd rather see me anyway, so I mean, what are you talking about? I'd like to see both of you guys. Uh, uh-huh, right. Uh, yeah, and right. Nick, too, for that matter. <clears throat> Come <to> uh, yay. <laughs> I can assure you the 717 will not be making it over to England anytime soon. No. But yeah, I, I'm just. Hey, I, I try. Come on. Make it adventure. a third of the way, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah we, can, we can make it in a couple stops, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Actually, it probably has a better range than the 88 does, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's probably the same way. I'm sure you could make it that. You, yeah. can, you can get a beaver across. I know that. You mm. should better get one of your things over. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't go there, Dana. What do you say just to that? Take that <laughs> snippet there. I um, just have to know because like when I beavers. was a young student pilot, I was watching this guy convert a beaver because he was going to uh, take it to Canada. From oh, yeah, the they take all kinds of stuff across the yeah, and then, uh, North Atlantic. And then, then you get the Alaska bush pilot. So what's your point? <laughs> no, I'm saying that you you should be easier on a 717, whatever it's called. Yeah, well, it and, and again, I, I preface that with that there are no technically any openings. If there happens to be any backfill, um, maybe I'll get lucky, but... You know, everybody knows my luck, so that's uh, part of the course. Oh, you've got good luck. You just hide it under a bushel or something. Hide it under yeah. a bushel. No. Under a bushel. I'm going to let and it under shine. A bush. I was going to say bush, but that, Well, enough of uh, beavers and bushes. Um, let's see. How about <laughs> – I'm not going to go to you, Steph. I'm sorry. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Captain Nick. <laughs> Well, uh, I've just been winding up the uh, last few things I need to do to get out of this company. Uh, And uh, while I was on the website trying to sort out uh, airline tickets and things and my little ruse to uh, try and book some uh, uh, of my staff tickets to use after I'd retired, because they usually uh, don't run out for three months, failed dismally because the computer system uh, somehow, somebody told the damn computer my date of retirement, and uh, they won't let me do that. So, uh, Yeah, I know. Isn't that mean? So I obviously, I'll, I, once I've retired, I can then access my retired ticket, so I'll have to use one of those. Anyway, um, by the by, uh, I so while I was doing all that, messing about, I checked my company email, and I found an email in there which was about a month old because I don't normally look at my company email very often because uh, it's normally someone telling me off or <laughs> something dreadful, <laughs> so I don't like to do that. <laughs> anyway, I found something rather nice, which was a change. It was uh, from Simon, one of our captain's uh, 
uh, on Acme Red. And um, he was telling me that he had been flying across the States and uh, he uh, went through Chicago Center and uh, the controller he was uh, um, speaking to um, said, um, oh, this is Joe from Chicago Center. And I'm wondering if you can uh, give uh, my regards to uh, Captain Nick because, uh, uh, you know, he asked him if he knew me. And he said, yeah, yeah I, know, I know Nick. So he said, please pass my regards. So I just wanted to give Joe from Chicago Center uh, a shout out. I hope you haven't lost patience, Joe, because it's been about a month since uh, this email was sent and probably a way bit before that that you actually spoke to uh, the uh, Acme Red flight. Anyway, uh, much appreciated. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, I always used to enjoy going to Chicago. It's a shame we still don't go there, but nice to know we can still chat to the guys at Centre. And um, the only other thing is really just to say that it's been a very busy month. I'm uh, oh, well, a week, I should say. I'm popping out to see one of our listeners tomorrow. And then um, over the weekend on Saturday, heading up to Duxford again, this time uh, to uh, see uh, Nick. Uh, and I'm always a bit nervous about pronouncing Nick's surname. And Nick uh, Camacho, is that right? I Ding. hope so. Good. You got it. Yeah. Um, who uh, will be there with the uh, C-47 that has flown over uh, to take part in the uh, D-Day uh, reenactments and all the flying that's going on between the UK and France. And Nick knows all about that. And if you're on Slack, there's a whole thread all about uh, those flights. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm not quite sure uh, when we're going to be able to meet up, but I'm basically going over to Duxford Saturday afternoon reasonably. Not too early in the afternoon, mid-afternoon, and uh, then hoping to uh, catch Nick and have a look around the aircraft and certainly have a chat to him and perhaps also have some audio. Um, oh, that would be great. The next show. And if any of our listeners um, want to try and catch us there, um, I'm not quite sure what access we'll have to the aircraft or whether we'll be able to get a meet-up. It may not be worth you paying all the money for a ticket just for the short time you're going to be there so i'd probably make it a full day and and if you haven't been there and have a good look around and then perhaps catch up with us uh, later on and nick's saying he might um actually organize something in the evening i sadly won't be able to stick around because i've got a very busy day the next day i'll need to get back but uh, they but possibly organizing something perhaps around his hotel or at a pub nearby uh, I sadly won't be able to stick for a bit of a meal. There's a McDonald's down the street. I can recommend chicken nuggets. That's where we'll find Captain L there. How is it that you know all the locations of every McDonald's in the world stuff? She's got an app for that. Um, yeah, there is an app for that. <laughs> <laughs> I stake these things out before I decide to go someplace. Hmm. Priorities. You Didn't Great. you see that movie about McDonald's? Oh, yeah. I've watched it several uh, times. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I feel angry. If I ate McDonald's every day, I wouldn't fit into the cockpit. <laughs> just have to eat well, the Well, that right guy was, he was going through the entire menu. You have to, you know, choose wisely. Yeah. Yeah, I choose apple slices. Thank you. They have those. Yeah. They do? I, don't, I was joking, mm -hmm. actually. No, no they, they do. They do. They have a salad that has apple slices, I think. You can just get apple slices really? in your Happy Meal. Uh -huh. Oh. <clears throat> wow. Cool. Co covered with citric acid, I'm sure. Absolutely. Of course. Got to keep them looking mm. like 
apples get a, get several days after. Apples. Well, citric acid is not uh, bad it's for just, you. It's sugar. Right? It's just lime juice. Yeah. It's fine. Um, so, um, Joe at Chicago Center, Nick, um, I've uh, had conversation with him a couple of times in the airplane. That's right. the uh, one and the same. The first time, uh, two years ago, when I uh, was flying into Madison to uh, be on that 30-hour layover so I could visit uh, some of our great APG community members at Oshkosh that year for half a day. And then um, not that long ago, just a couple of months ago, um, we were uh, leaving the Chicago area or flying through his airspace, and he gave me a, a vector and uh, got to talk to him. And he also sent us email saying that this is the same Joe from Chicago Center that wants us to, uh, or he's offered to give us a tour of Chicago Center. So that reminds me that. Uh, so, well, Chicago is my next destination. So perhaps I need his yeah, contact info. I'll give you so his awesome. uh, information, Steph. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, might as well just talk about this. Um, Captain Nick is uh, flying out to uh, Atlanta, hopefully. And uh, about the week before Oshkosh. And then uh, the two of us are going to drive up to Dayton, Ohio, where I am now. And we're going to visit the U.S. Air Force Museum at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And speaking of that, uh, Greg Peterson sent us some email. He says, I recall Captain Jeff and Captain Nick talking about making a stop at the U.S. Air Force Museum in Dayton later this year. I live in Lexington, Kentucky, and have been wanting to make a trip to the museum, and I thought I would try and coordinate so that I could meet you guys. Are you able to tell me the date that you are? Do you plan on visiting the museum? No, I'm sorry, Greg. We can't tell you the date. Right, secret. Yeah. No. Uh, we. So he, you're flying in, I think, like the 13th, 14th, something like that, that weekend. Yeah, it'll either be the Saturday or the Sunday, 13th or 14th, yeah. And then we're going to um, drive up probably on the Monday, the um, 15th. And so we're going to be in the Dayton area probably Monday, Tuesday that week. And then uh, eventually I think we're going to try to get to um, – that place where we're going to get the RV and the, on the south side of Chicago or whatever that town is called. Steph, what is, what is the name of that town? I always forget. Makina, Makuna, Makena, something like that. Makina? Makina. Something like that? I think so. I don't um, know. There's a lot of towns that sound kind of like that. Yeah, that town. In Illinois. And mm-hmm. uh, then we're going to get the RV and then we're going to drive from there up to Oshkosh. Uh, so, yeah. Um, in fact, we'll be driving from Atlanta to Dayton. We'll probably drive right through. Doesn't I-75 go right through Lexington? I think it does. Uh, so, uh, yeah, get in touch with us, uh, Greg, and uh, see if we can either meet you while we're driving through Lexington or if you want to take in the museum with us, uh, you're more than welcome to. And anybody listening right now, uh, as soon as Nick and I are able to nail down exact date and time, we'll put that on Slack and probably some of the other social media channels yeah, to let you know when we're planning on being there and anybody that uh, happens to be in the area and wants to join us, uh, please do. In fact, I don't know, maybe my first officer, uh, Cody, said, hey, why don't you uh, why don't you record a show at the U.S. Air Force Museum? No, oh, no, that's an idea. Huh. That's a good idea, actually. So maybe we can talk to I think there are some people that are listening to the show that are like have uh, positions at the Air Force Museum or know people there and uh, perhaps you can contact us and let us know who we need to talk to 
to see if we can get like a little small corner of the uh, museum and we can record a show there. Preferably in the cockpit of a Phantom. So, and I can sit. How are we going to do that? Jeff can sit behind. And uh, we oh we could put helmets on and, and record through our oxygen masks. That'd be cool. I would rather do it in the XB70 cockpit. Oh, you would, would you? Yeah, okay. but you know what? They're probably not going to let anybody in that airplane. <laughs> 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 but that would be a thrill of, thrill of a lifetime, that's for sure. Anyway, so uh, great idea from my uh, FO, and uh, we'll see. Maybe, you know, because we're going to have to record a show that week anyway, right? Yeah. So we'll see. Um, so look, join Slack. If you are not already an APG slacker, you should become one. And, uh, we'll probably have a discussion regarding this whole thing there. So covered that. We talked about Joe and what else did we want to talk about in the, uh, well, did we cover everybody? Dan, I know Steph. No, let's hear that's from okay. you. Nothing to, nothing to mention. Move on. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wait a minute. I don't think that's true. <laughs> well, nothing flying related anyway. It doesn't um, matter. We don't so care. yeah, we already mentioned long holiday weekend, which was nice. Um, mm-hmm. My brothers were in town through Sunday. So spent a lot of time um, just enjoying their company here still. And it was really hot, as was already mentioned. So we spent quite a bit of that time on the lake on Saturday, just relaxing and not doing a whole lot of physical activity. And then, um, oh, so Friday was my birthday. Yay. Yay. And we went out to dinner on Saturday night. And my youngest brother and I, while drinking um, some cocktails, just a few, uh, decided it would be a good idea to get up early in the morning and run a five-mile trail race at the Whitewater Center here in Charlotte. Um, that it sounds was not like a, a good great idea. idea. It was a terrible idea. <laughs> It was really hot. Um, yeah, it was really hot. And but we we did okay. Um, you know, Mikey put zero training into it, obviously, because he's hasn't run for a while and won't run again until the Chicago Marathon. Um, but he managed to win his age group, so that was that was pretty good. Twenty eighth overall. Uh, wow. And I came in eighty second overall and got third place in my age group. So we walked away with a couple of water bottles for our efforts. Nice. And uh, then we spent the day at the Whitewater Center, just uh, taking. We took a trip down the uh, the rafting channels that they have, the man-made rafting channels, which are actually pretty impressive. You know, there's some class three and four rapids in there, which is a lot of fun. Uh, we both fell out of the raft, the raft once. Actually, I took I, I fell out of the raft and I took Mikey out with me. <laughs> unfortunately my fault um but we had a great time and did some rock climbing as well and then um i sent them off on their way sunday night and monday i basically spent recovering and cleaning and not going outside because it was like an oven outside it's still like an oven outside (laughs) that i think brings you up to speed nothing too crazy okay that sounded brilliant actually well i hope you had a great birthday celebration and uh, it was great seeing your brothers yeah, it was just another uh, 21st an- 21st uh, birthday anniversary of celebration. Ah. Did you get did you get the key to the door this time? No. Isn't that a thing in the states? I don't know. You look- <laughs> key, to <what? laughs> key to the door. Key to the door. Yeah, in the UK. Yeah, you, yeah key you, to the city maybe? No, you get a you in traditionally in the UK your 21st was when you got a a door key so you could let yourself in and out of the house. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. No, here you just get kicked out of the house. 
That's oh, you're still living at home by 21. Get out. That's fair enough. <laughs> and that's, that sounds like a good plan. I wish I'd done been able to do that. <laughs> I think I got kicked out before 21. Jeez. <laughs> and now your dad's living with you. Yeah, exactly. Sweet irony. Tides turd. Tides <laughs> yeah. turd. That's okay. I suffer the same syndrome. I'm yes, I, me, I, so. I know. Yes. But it's a good thing. It's good to be able to take care of those who have taken care of you. Yes. I hope that my children follow suit. No guarantees. No, no guarantees. Sorry. <laughs> we'll take care of you, Jeff. Oh, thank you. My my APG family. Will you mm-hmm. take care of me? Okay. I'll have an extra room someday, Jeff. <laughs> okay. Whole whole apartment. Uh let's see here. I'm sorry, I'm distracted because I was trying to pull up something on one of my computers and I thought I had an internet connection, but apparently not. Um, but now I do. And I uh, just wanted to check something. Okay. All right. I think I'm ready to continue with, unless we have anything else to talk about, do we, before we move on to something else? Nope. Everybody's shaking their head. Nope. Go ahead. Nope. There we go. Uh, Let's talk about the way that you can be a participant in supporting the show financially. It's called the Coffee Fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh yeah, that's the Jeff Smith, one of the best jingle makers out there. TheJeffSmith.com. Anyway. He's singing the Java Jive for us today because we're going to talk about the Coffee Fund Club, and it's your way to support the show financially. A couple different ways to do that. We'll talk about that in a second. But the first is Coffee Fund Classic Method via PayPal, a one-time or recurring donation. And since the last show, Stuart McCutcheon sent us a generous contribution. Thank you very much, Stuart. And the other way to do it is to become a patron of the show via Patreon.com and since the last episode, no new producers um, signing up with the Patreon, but that's okay. Um, we're doing great. Uh, if you want to join the Coffee Fun Club and become a supporter of the show and get uh, the perk of periodic audio extras, we call them crew logs, uh, please check out the Coffee Club at airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And so will we. Stand by for news. Let's start off with some good news for a change. Uh, The first item here is a 105-year-old woman 
celebrates birthday with her first flying lesson. And this is from Plane and Pilot magazine. Uh, the Wrights were still pups when Virginia Mills was born. She'd always wanted to fly, so she finally did. Um, on May 18th, 2019, it was the 105th birthday for Virginia Mills. How did she celebrate? By going flying, of course, for the first time ever. She'd said she'd always wanted to fly, so with the help of the angels, she got her wish. Those angels, by the way, are the folks who work at the assisted living facility in Ohio, where Virginia resides, a couple of local pilots and a number of other special friends. The flight itself was memorable. Mills went up in a Cessna 172 with local pilots, CFI, Gliosi, and fellow airman Mark Taylor going out of Portage County Airport, Ohio. Gliosi uh, let Virginia try her hand at aviating so she could finally see the world from a new point of view. Um, a side note, Portage County was the perfect airport for that, given its three-letter identifier, P-O-V. Oh, I get it. Point of view. Uh, very clever. How'd it go? Gliosi said that Virginia rocked it, flying the plane throughout the lesson and even landing it herself. Her new CFI even had a birthday present for her when she emerged, her very own logbook with the first entry signed off. How did Virginia like it? Well, as she exited the airplane, she collapsed and passed away. No, I'm just kidding. No, uh, she didn't. <laughs> um, so no, <laughs> she said, one of my best birthdays ever. So happy, slightly belated birthday from all of us at Plane and Pilot, Virginia, and all of us at APG as well. And we'll put a link to this in the show notes. You can see the, uh, she looks great for 105 years old, I think. Well, she looks better than I do. That. She does look very good. And, yeah. you know, I'm not sure if this story is entirely true because I'm pretty sure I've seen her work in the trolley on my last Delta flight. I, um, oh. <laughs> so One of the senior I have a feeling times. that she flies for Delta and she's been, <laughs> you know, flying, you know, uh, a lot. So I'm not quite sure how true this uh, She was never at the controls is. before. <laughs> Well, that's probably true. It's yeah, her she, first flying yeah. lesson. Yeah, yeah. She's probably chicken or veg, chicken or veg. Uh. <laughs> I, I feel like I should make a slight correction to the folks at um, Plane and Pilot magazine. They said uh, the Wright brothers were just young pups when, um, or something like that, mm -hmm. when she was born. Well, if she's 105, she was born in 1914. Yeah. You do my math right there. Uh, yep. Yeah. You are correct. Uh Wilbur Wright passed away in 1912. Oh, so not really not, young pup. Not, not true. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, he was rather young when he passed away, but um, yeah. <laughs> but not a, wouldn't but not many years as a after pup. their flight. Not many years after. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. I'm just saying. So just we found two holes of this article already. <laughs> but it's this a is lovely fake story. news, I think. <laughs> yeah, story. yeah. She's actually cabin crew and uh, and. Wilbur was already dead. Yep. I think this photo was photoshopped as well. <laughs> Her shirt is great, though. It took me 105 years to look this good. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's just pretend it was a very true story. No. Well, I, sure I, was, I rather like it anyway. Yeah, it's it's nice that she got to live her dream of being at the controls. <laughs> it's a great story. Hey, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Yeah, you're 105, aren't you? Well, I feel like it. <laughs> I look like it. <laughs> No, that's the thing is that, like, you take a look at Nick and Jeff, and neither one of you guys look day over, like, 55 years old. 
And well, thank um, you. She's, <laughs> she's, she looks, I mean, seriously, my, in comparison, yeah, my grandmother looks- who passed away at uh, the right old age of 83. I mean, my grandmother looked worse off than this lady. So, yeah. I mean, it's almost like the 100 years old is more like being 80 years old nowadays. And it's the new age. So it's either clean living or good genes or some combination of the two. Or clean jeans. I don't think we have ever gone anybody anywhere. <laughs> are are my jeans good? I, uh, yeah. Are they clean? Good jeans? Yes. Yeah. Are they clean? Uh, have you laundered them recently? Well, I don't no. launder them. How is, I took uh, a shower last week. How is Andy Anderson doing? Oh, uh, Pop's doing fine. Thanks very much indeed. Still you know, kicking around. And yeah, uh, uh, yeah absolutely. I've been uh, writing to him on Facebook and uh, all those beautiful pictures I had taken of me in front of a Sunderland. Uh, uh, looks great and absolutely brilliant. So all those have gone across. I, I, I noticed in one of the pictures uh, I had taken uh, behind me were three. This is in the... Um, Duxford Museum. Behind me were three aircraft that he had flown. Uh, and I thought that's pretty neat wow. to be able to say, uh, you see those three airplanes over there? I used to fly those. <laughs> Not a lot of people can say that, right? No, no, exactly right. Now there was a DC-3, a Sunderland, and a Tiger Moth. So that wow. was good. Uh, just in one picture that I happened to notice. Now, it'll be fun when Nick and I go there and we can start pointing out at the uh, pointing out the airplanes that we've flown in the past. We're already able to do that for Nick. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know, but I mean, I think there are a lot of airplanes that I've flown that will probably be there too. (laughs) I was going to say. (laughs) Give it about 10 years. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Let's move on, shall we? Um, Item B. Two jets experienced engine failure but landed safely after receiving fuel contaminated with diesel exhaust fluid at a Florida airport. I'm thinking, what? What is diesel exhaust fluid? And they, I guess it's called DEF for short. I was um, at the uh, Punta Gorda airport. Um, the DEF was uh, added erroneously to the fuel supply carried by a fuel truck. DEF is a urea-based chemical that is used to reduce diesel engine emissions under a federal environmental mandate. DEF is not intended for use in aircraft. And when added to jet fuel, can trigger reactions including the formation of crystals that can plug fuel filters and damage other engine components. Uh, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association strongly urges aircraft operators to become knowledgeable about the DEF fuel contamination risk and to promptly report any suspected contamination to their FAA flight standards inspector or local FAA office. So I guess apparently, I'm not sure why and, and who. Uh, I guess maybe the fixed-based operators, uh, the FBOs, added this stuff to uh, the uh, fuel, perhaps thinking it was some kind of an, a de-icing inhibitor or something. I don't know. This is all news to me. That's what we Yeah, but it is holder. terrifying. It doesn't matter how many damned engines you've got. If someone contaminates your fuel, uh, then you're stuffed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's really see. bad news. <laughs> one of them, uh, like one of them, had a like a single engine failure, and then the other one on short final failed, so a dual engine failure, and uh, a lot of other cases of just one engine failing. But still, it's not it's not optimum. So no, for sure. Uh, so if you're there out is there, another, isn't isn't there another additive that's added to? Um, yeah, uh, small jet. I think so. 
Uh, and yeah. I think it's there to kind of help with, um, you know, preventing icing. Icing, yeah. It's well, an icing. FSII? I'm not system sure. icing inhibitor? Perhaps. I don't know. It sounds to me like somebody got things confused and um, added the wrong thing to the, to the fuel. But uh, apparently, well, any of you listening out there who fly business jets, you should probably be aware of this. You probably Prist. already are. But yeah, Prist. Yeah. Prist. That's the name of it, Prist. Yeah, I remember that stuff. Um, yep, we used to put it in fuel. Thank you, Lane. Our, our brain in the chat room, or we have a lot yeah, of brains. Yeah, but what in the is Prist? Um, it's. Um, uh, I actually looked it up. Man, I don't know. Look okay. it up. <laughs> what it stands for. It's a, it's a, um, I think it's a, um, name, a, a brand name for this de-icing inhibitor. We used to put it in the uh, fuel. fuel system icing inhibitor. Okay. Oh, FSII. There you go. That's just a name brand, I guess. Prist is a name stuff. of it for some FSI. It's ethylene glycol, yeah. which is formative of what we use to de-ice the wings. Oh, that's what I drink all the time. I think. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, ethylene glycol, glycol. Or is ethyl. ethylene glycol the one that makes you blind and kills you? Well, if you drink I wouldn't it. recommend drinking either <laughs> of them. What's the stuff that's in this wine that I'm drinking? Alcohol. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean. Tannins. <laughs> Grapes. Thank you, Steph. Grapes. Our scientist. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> Grapes. Fermented sugar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Bad yeast. What kind of alcohol is like. Okay, never mind. <laughs> it's the good on. kind, Jeff. The it's good, the good kind. The kind that you can drink. <laughs> Who cares? It's the dihydrogen monoxide that you really have to look out That's for. That's true. Yeah, that stuff's nasty. You can you can drown. You, you if, can. I mean if you yeah. can you can I mean, suffocate if you, if you, if you breathe, breathe it, it in. Yes. Yeah. It's damn damn dangerous look it up. to put near your mouth in case you breathe it. <laughs> okay, let's continue. Um uh, the incident in today's news folder is a China Southern A380 suffered damages after flying through a hailstorm. This is from the Aviation Herald, a China Southern Airlines, which I just said, Airbus A380-800, was performing flight 3101 from Gangshu to Beijing, was en route at 11,300 meters, which is flight level 371 near Henan when the aircraft received a hail strike, <laughs> causing the windshields to become cracked. The crew performed a rapid descent to about 16,000, 17,000 feet and continued to Beijing for a safe landing about 90 minutes later. The occurrence aircraft is still on the ground in Beijing about 16 hours after landing. And uh, there are some pictures here, which we'll include in the show notes. You can look at them as well. And uh, that big giant nose on that A380 is... Um, peppered with um, hail stone damage, including... Oh, they, like they, looks they've like already, they've, they've already fixed the problem. They've stuck some speed tape over it's it. It's a very, yeah. <laughs> very big... <laughs> big patch. There, I fixed it. <laughs> it's yeah. good to go. Okay, yep, off you go, mate. <laughs> well, he managed to land it through that windscreen, so I'm sure you can take off again. Yeah. Actually, that it, windscreen, windscreen looks a mess, doesn't it? It looks <laughs> terrifying. It'd be very difficult to see out of that windscreen. Yeah. Yeah, very difficult. So I have a question. Yes. That's an awfully big airplane to be flying between Guangzhou and Beijing, was it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. A, How far are those cities of 
from each other. Not very big. Not, not no, a lot. No, so they're only a few hours apart. But mm-hmm. uh, I mean, uh, don't forget that they used to fly uh, 747s uh, internally around Japan, and that's a pretty small place. True. In fact, that's one of the reasons they built the SP, wasn't it? So that they could operate uh, short uh, hops around Japan. There's oh, a lot thought, of people in China. I thought the SP was for like super long distance flights. Uh, oh, okay, you might be right. Actually, yeah, because I of, think the SP was for long. Yeah. long Which long. is the one they built then that did uh, could stand an awful lot of um, uh, sectors? They they did some produced one version that was specific. Which probably carried a lot of passengers and probably not a lot of fuel. I'll have to have a look at that. Okay. We used to uh, fly the L ten eleven at Acme Airlines between Atlanta and Orlando, three hundred and one, three hundred and two passengers, something like that, and it was full every single flight and uh, so where's miami rick when you need him miami come rick on. where are you rick rick come yeah. on i know yep. you're listening say hello we miss you yeah we tell us all about the sp i need to know yeah we need some uh feedback so we can play the crickets just kidding i promise i will not play the crickets and finally in the news folder an accident unfortunately we have to bring it all down um a, I can answer that question before you go to the okay. next Please feedback. Yeah. Uh, the Boeing 747SP is a version of the Boeing 747, which was designed for ultra-long range flights. Okay. SP is for special performance. It's similar to the 74100, except for it's a much shortened, shortened fuselage. Um, it allows your tailplane simplified, simplified trailing edge flaps. So it looks, it, it, it's a very stubby, and, and <clears throat> I don't know if you remember flying. It looks like a cartoon uh, airplane to me. Yeah, and, and it's actually kind of funny because a church actually owned one that had it on the, the runway in Dayton. I think he's, no, um, I don't think it's Dayton. I think it's um, Canton, Where's Akron, Canton. Dayton? Akron, Canton, and it's um, Ernest exactly. Angley, the um, preacher who owns, and I think still owns, that airplane. I think it's still parked at the Canton Akron, Akron Canton. And and it was up in that area. I couldn't yeah. remember. I thought, and it was, uh, yep. Steve uh, Horn, our, research, yep. our research department has told me that the 747-400D was the version that was built for a uh, short domestic uh, routes, oh. uh, not the SP. So I hold my hand up and say, I've just scraped back to 50% guys. Woo! Thank you. Thank you. That deserves. And thank you, research so, department. Yes. Liz. <laughs> Liz and Micah and Lane. As David and Collier. Steve Horn and everybody gave else. gave that information. Thank you, David. Yeah. Thank you for keeping us on track. Track. Okay. Um, anyway, getting back to this item in our news folder. Um, a Cessna 560 Citation Encore. Is this one of the airplanes they call the Slotation? Crustacean. Crustacean. <laughs> um, it's a, a straight wing uh, Cessna Citation, not one of the super fast ones like the like the uh, Citation 10. Uh, anyway, uh, this airplane was flying from uh, St. Louis Regional Airport in Illinois and uh, en route to Fort Lauderdale Executive Airport um, in Florida, the uh, Kilo Foxtrot X-Ray Echo Airport. The aircraft climbed to a cruising altitude of flight level 390. At some point in the flight, ATC communication with the aircraft was lost. 
at uh, 2052 UTC, the flight passed overhead the Florida, uh, the uh, Fort Lauderdale Executive Airport at flight level 390 and just kept going, continuing on a heading of roughly 080 degrees over the Atlantic Ocean. The aircraft was intercepted by two Homestead-based Air Force Reserve F-15s shortly before it went down into the sea. Uh, so it crashed. So single pilot, very high altitude, and this certainly sounds to me like it has all the markings of hypoxia. I would yeah. agree. Yeah, I Absolutely. think so. Yeah. At least he went peacefully. Um, and we're going to talk about hypoxia in our feedback section. In fact, we're going to do that. Unless we want to talk about this anymore, let's move on to the feedback. What do you think? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Captain, incoming message. Thank you all. Oh, by the way, this is from Jared. Thank you all for the consistently entertaining podcast. I don't learn a thing from it, but it's funny. No, he didn't. Which podcast is he talking about? <laughs> Are very entertaining, but really useless as far as useful information is concerned. Podcast. I wanted to send in some feedback regarding the discussion about hypoxia following the plain tale in episode 372. Captain Nick had mentioned the importance of hypoxia symptom recognition training for those that fly pressurized aircraft. In addition, there is a form of hypoxia I want to highlight that can also fatally affect us GA guys, Georgia guys, uh, that uh, tend to stay below 10,000 feet. Wait a minute. That's not right, is it? General aviation. Many single-engine GA aircraft have symptoms or systems that use the heat produced by the exhaust to provide heat in the cabin. These systems generally have a chamber surrounding the muffler with tubing that connects to vents inside the cabin, some for window defrosting and others for climate control. When the pilot activates the system, air is rooted from the outside into the chamber around the muffler where the air is heated, then into the cabin. I think my Volkswagen Beetle had the same kind of system, actually. Um, although the systems are relatively effective and eliminate the requirement for a separate heat source, there are risks involved. The chief among those risks would be any sort of leak of exhaust gas into the heating chamber. It goes without saying, but such a leak would cause exhaust gases to be pumped into the cabin. Because the exhaust gases contain carbon monoxide, which is CO, carbon monoxide poisoning, a form of anemic hypoxia, can affect those in the cabin. CO is extremely efficient at binding to hemoglobin, the protein and blood cells that carries oxygen around the body. The problem arises from the reality that CO can bind to hemoglobin far more quickly than O2. Because of this imbalance, an abundance of CO in the body can essentially crowd out the oxygen from being able to bind to the hemoglobin, therefore producing anemic hypoxia. All that said, I simply wanted to highlight the importance of hypoxia symptom recognition training for any and all pilots, not just those who fly pressurized aircraft. Although in a different form, hypoxia can still cause fatalities for the average Cessna 172 driver even if he or she never climbs higher than 8,500 feet in cruise. Because CO is odorless, the pilot may be running the heater, but never know he or she is suffering from CO poisoning and coming close to incapacitation. Sorry for the technical feedback, but I do think the issue is crucial to talk about for a pilot of any aircraft. 
thanks for the great show. Apparently, he's suffering hypoxia, anemic hypoxia at the point where he was writing this. Uh, sorry, uh, let's see. P.S. In case someone hasn't seen it yet, there's an amazing video on YouTube entitled Why You Should Put Your Mask On First. The filmmaker joins an astronaut on his recurrent hypoxia training and enters the chamber himself, too. It's fascinating, but harrowing. No, it's a fascinating but harrowing watch to see the filmmaker become severely hypoxic and essentially have to be rescued by the trainers. Also, the film starts with Formation T-38 takeoff filmed from inside the cockpit, so you'll be hooked right away. Ooh, i got to watch that. I haven't myself. Did you guys get a chance to look at that YouTube video? Did not. I didn't not either. Yet. I'll be, take nope. me back to my T-38 days. That was a lot of fun. Um, what do you think, Steph? Um, CO is, he's right. Like, uh, just as. No, he's hundred percent right. That's why carbon monoxide is so dangerous because it has a much higher affinity for hemoglobin than oxygen does. And that's why people get into trouble. Um, especially with carbon monoxide poisoning in, uh, their homes. Um, but the same thing can certainly happen in aircraft or as you mentioned, even cars that have this type of heating system. Um, if there's not good ventilation otherwise, or if you're at high altitude, um, yeah, he's, he's spot on. Um, and I don't know that I have a whole lot to add to it. Certainly, we've talked about hypoxia a lot in the past. Um, if you want to hear a really detailed uh, discussion about it, you can actually uh, check out the time I was uh, moonlighting on the Airplane Geeks podcast. It was episode 362. I've looked it up. Why would they want to do that stuff? Come on. Well, if they want to hear all the technical information related know, to hypoxia. Great, great podcast, Airplane Geeks. They've been around forever. But he's, yeah, I mean, he's right. Fall off their perches soon. Um, by the way, Josine mentions in the uh, chat room that most cockpits have uh, carbon monoxide detectors. So, what? Uh, Mine yeah. Not in general aviation aircraft. <laughs> we don't, I don't have one. I, I have never flown a general aviation aircraft with okay, a carbon monoxide. Okay, Josine, detector. you'll have to support your statement. Yeah, with, come uh, on. Quotes. Yeah, you were doing so a, well, you know, flexing your biology degree until this point. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Four speeds of hypoxia videos also. Perhaps she's yeah. mistaking those little um, fir trees, uh, smelly fir trees. For <laughs> those are not <laughs> carbon monoxide detectors. <laughs> but I Josie, mean, no, 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 no. To, I mean, fit one would it? Uh, no, mean, it wouldn't. Uh, you no. can play a house, a battery path. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in all fairness, a lot of GA airplanes, and I wouldn't say it most, but I would say there are several, especially rental aircraft that I've, I've been in. Uh, in personal aircraft that I've been in that do have those little, it's almost like a little uh, size of a, a business card with a little um, carbon monoxide detector um, disc in there that will start uh, changing color, I think is what happens. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen plenty of those, but not, I mean, not on, on, a, on a prolific basis. I mean, uh, maybe one out of every 10, maybe. Um, I think yeah, Josine I mean, they, they uh, flies aircraft that come uh, that are very well equipped with this kind of equipment. Well, and if you're flying in cold environments like yeah. Canada, where you're yeah. using the heater quite a bit more, that's probably something um, true. Yeah, know, that's just a little bit more valuable. I mentioned stuff and down in Georgia. I, I hardly ever saw that, but up in up in the Boston area where I did a lot of flying, we 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 it was quite a regular um, item in the airplane. So big difference, I guess. Mm -hmm. And hmm. that makes good sense. But yeah, know your uh, hypoxia symptoms so that you can recognize it should it happen to you for any of the four types of hypoxia. 
Well, the, and uh, the differences between recognizing someone with cyanosis and someone with uh, carbon monoxide poisoning are from a, a visual uh, standpoint, Steph? Well, that's a good question. I don't... Um... Because I'm thinking cherry red uh, lips, flushed face uh, is classic for carbon monoxide, yeah. whereas cyanosis is blueing of the lips and huh. blueing of the Why would it be different? Because of the color, uh, the blood turns when oh. carbon monoxide is present. Oh, okay. Uh, th that's from my own aeromedical training, so uh, I need to be uh, no probably idea. backed up with some facts. But uh, that's well, we, we never let 40... facts get in the way. No, here. no, I'm <laughs> scraping a 40-year-old barrel here, trying to remember. That's okay. It's stuff um, I don't think about on a day-to-day -day basis either. So I'm going to um, <laughs> get you some good information, and I will get back to you on it, so that we can be above 50. percent Well, Nick Camacho cool. does because I don't want to get them mixed up here. Because I probably will get them mixed up now that you've brought up all of the different symptoms that you can get. <laughs> hey, folks! If you want accurate information, you need to listen to other podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to be entertained, stay here. Um, and there's just a chance that we might actually get something right, apparently. Um, Nick Camacho mentions that uh, there's a really entertaining hypoxia-related um, video on YouTube called, uh, what is it called, Four Aces? He said... Four of Spades. Uh, four four of spades. spades, that's it. Four of Spades. <laughs> it was really funny. All uh, right. Okay. Well, there you go. Jacine says, uh, because CO has a greater affinity... For the heme, hema, actually, hemoglobin, uh, and the bright red is what oxygenated blood looks like. Yes, but did you say it the opposite way around, Nick? No, I said that the symptoms for a carbon monoxide poisoning are cherry red lips and uh, red face, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, whereas yep. for cyanosis, uh, lack of oxygen, lack of oxygen, will be blue. go blue too. Correct. But. If you had extra CO, doesn't that mean also no, at the because same time, it's just lack a, of oxygen? It's bound. Like the, the oh. heme molecule has something bound to it, so it's well, red. I apparently wasn't there that day during my <laughs> biology class. Okay, well, this is fascinating stuff. Good. Um, if you want to know more about this, please contact Josine Lafonte. Because mm -hmm. uh, she is the one that knows a lot about it. Anyway, um, thank you, um, Jared, for that discussion about hypoxia, anemic hypoxia, hypoxia, to be whatever the word is. I'm trying to precise. Yes. What were you? Look, what were you trying to I say? I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Stop him drinking wine. Yeah, I should probably have not have gone for the second glass of wine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hang on. You're in your third. Now. Shut up. Uh, okay. two. <laughs> Who's counting, right? I'm not going to be the only so one here. Well, Liz is in the background, but maybe on air. Well, you know, Liz, and she likes her scotch. Okay. Um, let's uh, continue with item number two. Also dealing with hypoxia. And uh, this is, well, it's some audio feedback. So let me hit the play button and see what we have here. I don't hear anything. <laughs> Why? Oh, I know why. Hang on. Let me select the proper audio channel and let me try it again. 
Hello, APG crew. This is Chike from Washington, D.C. And this is my first bit of feedback, so I'm hoping it goes around well. I'm writing in response to episode 372. Um, there was discussion of the effects of hypoxia and high-altitude cabin depressurization. And I'd want to leave some feedback as to what aircraft manufacturers, specifically Airbus, is doing to combat this issue. They recently certified a feature, and it's been introduced to their A350-1000 model, and it will be coming to the 900 and other aircraft, Airbus models in the future. The feature allows the aircraft to recover from a rapid depressurization when there isn't a, an adequate crew response. If there isn't an adequate crew response, the aircraft will slightly deviate from the flight path, um, descend to about an altitude of 10,000 feet or a couple thousand feet above the minimum safe altitude uh, for its flight path and contact ATC while doing so. Um, the feature is meant to give the crew a chance to recover from the hypoxia and kind of save the aircraft or recover the aircraft um, and bring it safely to the ground. I think this is something that could save thousands of lives in the future. Um, and it's something that I would like to see other aircraft manufacturers um, implement in their aircraft as well. Um, that's it for my feedback. Uh, thank you. And really enjoying the show so far. Thank you, Chica. Um, great first audio feedback. And he gave us a link to the flightglobal.com article regarding the A350-1000 feature, uh, which I guess is um, something that's optional. I'm not sure. Or if it's a, a default thing. Um, but uh, so, interesting. Uh, an automated system. Uh, we know about automated systems and how they can kind of bite you. Uh, but apparently this automated system has some safeguards uh, to prevent it from being activated accidentally. What do you think, Nick? Well, the, um, the emergency descent procedure is uh, not necessarily a very easy procedure to fly. Most pilots will never have done one for real. You only get a chance to practice uh, the procedure in the simulator, and then not every sim. So it's not like you will have done one recently. So when you do get a a depressurization, um, being able to carry it out perfectly every time, uh, particularly when it's, uh, you know, if it happens for real and there's a real shock factor involved, um, I think the chances are that most pilots won't get the, the procedure perfect. Um, there may be, um, they may forget the speed brakes. They may, in the Airbus, they may pull the speed brakes too high, too much, too early, and end up um, hitting the um, system that raises the nose when you get the aircraft too close to the stall, which is obviously counter um, to what you're trying to achieve to send the airplane. So I, I'm quite keen to think that there would be a um, autopilot routine which you could engage uh, to bring the aircraft down, basically to do the um, emergency descent flying for you whilst you cope with getting your mask on, making sure you're okay, making sure your first officer is okay, 
seeing what's down the cabin, checking a position, working out escape routes. It's very involved if you're in, in high terrain doing an emergency descent for a depressurization because it's not simply a matter of getting the aircraft down. Uh, there's a lot of places in the world where you would have to follow a complicated escape routine to get clear of high ground so that you could get the aircraft down. Um, you know, below 10,000 feet in time before your passengers started dying because they're running out of oxygen in the back. Um, so I like that idea. The idea of having it self-initiate, not so keen on that. I think uh, it should be initiated by the flight crew. In other words, I'd hate to think that the aircraft could do it on its own. So I I'm guess I'm not clear here um, because the... Um, head design engineer Dezotti, uh from this article, uh, the flightglobal.com, says that you have to do a push and pull input in order to make sure that you don't make a mistake. Although, so when I first saw this, I thought it was like one of those things, as you just mentioned, that occurred automatically. Let's say there is a an event where hypoxia has occurred and, you know, the pilots are incapacitated does does this automatically happen or is it something that has to be initiated by the pilots does it automatically happen and you have to prevent it from happening if you've not responded to i don't know alerts i, th I think i think we're just getting too automated uh, you know i mean i can see the i can see the value of this you know like if you're like the dude that was flying that citation you know if, the, if they had a system that detected that uh, they're not receiving any inputs anymore from the pilot um and let's go ahead and initiate an automatic uh, automated sequence to get down to a lower altitude um I, I could see the value in that but on the other hand i see where you're going dana you know these automated systems that are supposed to quote help the pilots you know uh, in a situation where you know you could uh, be exposed to higher risk uh sometimes backfires and uh and then we have to deal with a, a system that's firing that is not supposed to be firing. Yeah, it says here that, uh, that this is the sentence that I read that made me think it would automatically work. It says that the emergency descent feature being considered for the 350, which would automatically initiate an unaided descent if the crew failed to respond uh -huh. to a cautionary alert, possibly indicating incapacitation from depressurization. I do like that. So, you, uh, that's the bit I'm not too sure about because, yeah. quite honestly, um, the aircraft has plenty of warnings uh, if you are depressurizing. Um, and you'd have to um, be very lax to ignore all those to the point where you became incapacitated. Uh, and so I'm thinking, uh, no, I don't, uh, I think it would be pretty rare for you to end up missing all those warnings and then lose consciousness and then have to have the aircraft descend itself. Yeah. But you just but, had a, you had a plane tail about the, what the Helios. Um, yeah. Obviously to be fair, them. the, the difference between the, uh, the Airbus warnings and the 737 warnings are like chalk and cheese. Uh, yeah. For a start, the 737 warnings, that horn is duplicated for various problems and uh, not every aircraft even had a, caution to indicate why the horn had gone off mm -hmm. it's only in later versions and even that caution i've heard from 
several th- 737 pilots saying it's it's not an obvious light it's actually easily missed um mm. so uh, you know I, the airbus um ecam warning system is very clear very loud very obvious in clear bold red letters that you need to conduct an emergency descent so uh, when you get a depressurization so i think that is completely unambiguous and where those the, these two aircraft are such different generations that yeah. i think the airbus warning system is, is so much uh easier to understand so do you think that uh this system is then not necessary no i think it's a good idea i think it's the actual handling aspects of getting the aircraft a big aircraft like the in a 340 600 and the 350s is going to be a similar size into an emergency descent it requires careful handling to get it exactly configured right and get the air brakes out at the right point and uh, get everything going down having an automated system that aids the pilot do that when he's actually also fighting to put his oxygen mask on and do all the other initial actions or that emergency ascent drill i think that's a damn good idea but whether you were going to go as far as having the aircraft being able to self-initiate that would be my only area for concern well, I think you guys are both missing the point here. I What's think it's a, I think it's I think it's a move towards going towards single pilot operations. I think that it's a safety a safety valve to back up the single pilot operation if uh, they should go unconscious because if you really think about the the uh, commercial aviation world when we talk about commercial I'm talking about airline world when was the last time you heard of uh, uh, both pilots being incapacitated by rapid decompression or a, a, a uh, oxygen event? Of course, we you know we know about the Payne Stewart event. We talked about the, the citation that went out over the Atlantic Ocean. Those types of events are, are insidious and and uh, they they you know may happen at a very slow rate. But what what are the chances of both pilots in in in, in a commercial airliner being incapacitated? Uh, I don't I don't I've never heard of it, and I've never you know. I've never seen it. Well, that that very plain tale included the Helios 737 incident when both pilots were incapacitated. That's that's a perfect example. No, well, that's okay. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm Medina. But the, Medina, the chance- not, not not just not single pilot operation, no pilot operation. That's well, the, I mean that. Yeah, but uh, it's it's definitely heading. It would. It, I think it's a step towards that yeah. direction. The automation is you know, coming. I think you have a point. I really do. And I, and, I, and I misspoke. I mean, I, I yes, I, you're right. I, I did listen to Plain Tales, and, and I, I don't know why I said I that. I never listened so to Plain Tales. It's a very rare. I actually listened to a lot of Plain Tales <laughs> driving out of Florida, and they were fantastic to re-listen to some of them. But anyways. Um, what is Plain Tales? Don't I? Today's is fantastic. All right, I have already listened to it. Let me uh, let me enter the argument here and say that we're already heading this direction of no pilots. We already already ride on plenty of trains where there are no drivers, and uh, if you look at all these uh, air taxi uh, vertical takeoff things like you know man carrying drones, they are all designed to go without a pilot. Um, Yep. So you know it. The, the industry is heading this way, and it may, it may not happen in, our, happen in our lifetime, but I certainly think our children or our children's children will uh, be able to fly in a machine like that if should they choose to. Hmm. Good luck with that. Yeah, I agree, but uh, yeah. there you go. 
Uh, steam engines went out a while ago, so you know. I still like my steam engine. Move on. Thank you very much. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I'm using Steam right now, so I like my Steam. Yeah, I don't know why. I'm yeah, cooking. I'm cooking with Steam at the very moment. Oh, exactly right. That's there's true. nothing. There's and nothing pressure. wrong with a yeah, that's pressure. Pressure. You know, I actually traveled on a steam engine not that long ago, and geez, you get a lot of dirt flying around. God, lummy. I don't think I've ever traveled on a. Really? Well, people steam forget engine. that they, they burn a lot of coal, and all that coal comes out in, in out of the yes. smokestack and goes flying in the. If you open the carriage window and you get a face full of coal dust, it's. Yeah. Are you oh, talking yeah. about the uh, man dog again? Yes. <laughs> I mean, they have windows that open too, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. A little breeze and yeah. yeah. ventilation. Yeah, there might be carbon monoxide yeah, indicators cockpit. in some airplane cockpits. We have coal dust. Uh, there you go. Indicators. In hey, ours. can I back up to um, that cherry red? Because uh, I learned something. Because I didn't, I didn't know this. Um, or maybe I did a long time ago and I've forgotten it. My apologies to all the emergency medicine doctors and pulmonologists out there. Um, but that cherry red skin color or lip color that you referenced, Nick? Yeah. Only seen in 2 to 3% of symptomatic cases of carbon monoxide poisoning. So, Oh, um, really? Yeah. What's the usual symptom? Uh, it's just being having a headache, being easily fatigued, um, and then it just gradually gets worse from there. More weakness, more nausea. You don't display cyanosis, so presumably you... No, no cyanosis with this one. Yeah, oh, yeah. Hmm. This one's much harder to pick up, which is why it's so so problematic. Okay. But hmm. right. But interesting. I just that is I learned that, yeah. so I wanted Thanks. to uh, pass that along. Thank you. Appreciate that. Bing, 50%. Bing, oh, Bing. 50%. <laughs> Got it. Please note it. That was like... It was like one of those buzzwords for boards way back in the day, and I've not thought about it in like, I don't know how many <laughs> years. But like, you know, there was like this light bulb in the back of my head, like, oh yeah, that is a thing. Hey, you Just know what? I'm getting tired of talking about hypoxia. I'm just tired. Yeah, well, me too. <laughs> so let's continue <laughs> on. This is, this is going to be a fun subject. Uh, JJ Pittsburgh, uh, who has visited uh, Dana and Stephanie and myself in the last month or well, so. Doesn't he like me? Well, we're not going to talk about the things oh, that we great. talked about behind the scenes. You know, uh, he says, Hey, APG crew, it's road warrior, JJ Pittsburgh here. First off, it was great getting to meet captain Dana, captain Jeff and Dr. Steph on separate occasions. You were all so sweet. So, was that who did who did that? Was that Nick? That was not me. I just wanted to say that was not me. That was not me. So as I was heading to Charlotte for the meetup, I noticed some signage stating that speed limits were enforced by aircraft. I was curious if you had insight as to how that all works. Hope to meet you all again soon. Except Captain Nick. Peace and love, JJ. So I uh, was wondering the same thing myself because I have seen those signs, speed limits mm -hmm. enforced by aircraft. In Virginia. Yeah. Virginia. So um, this is from Mental Floss. Uh, when you're traveling for the holidays, you might notice some signs on the highway that read speed limit or that read speed limit enforced by aircraft. 
If you're like me, those signs conjure images of the cops scrambling a team of jet fighters to take a driver with a lead foot off the road. In reality, it's a little less exciting. Here's how it works in Pennsylvania. Certain lengths of highway that are known to be trouble spots for speeding are targeted by the State Police Aerial Reconnaissance Enforcement, S-P-A-R-E or SPARE. Other states will have their own names for similar programs marked with start and finish lines at a set distance from each other. I think that uh, for at least those of us here in the United States, you'll probably recall seeing big, bold, white lines in the roadway. And that's what those are used for. They're, uh, you know, speed marks. Uh, or they, what they do is they use like a, a, a special kind of a stopwatch thing, and they, from above, look at the car crossing that line and hit the what start. What do you mean special kind of stopwatch? It's a stopwatch. Well, that... What else is special about it? Well, they might. Some <laughs> police departments use VASCAR systems, whatever that is. I don't know what that is. It's a special kind of a stopwatch. Oh, yeah. It's a special... Visual average speed computer and recorder. Yeah, that's the special darn stopwatch I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so they basically do a simple, you know, um, distance over time kind of a calculation and determine your speed from that. And then they swoop down in their airplane and they have these special little grippy things on the airplane that grab the roof of your car and then they lift you up from the. No, wait a minute. They don't do that. They radio. To me. <laughs> they radio a police officer in a in a car and say, "Hey, that uh, that yellow Ford Pinto." <laughs> they still have those on the road. Um, so do some is- of these counties have more money than sense. Well, you know, yes. actually, I did a little bit more research, Nick, and yeah. uh, from Slate, they basically said that pretty much most states don't really do that anymore. Yeah, Very, Virginia doesn't actually use it right now. It doesn't. They can't uh, take the signs down though, because the uh, Virginia State Police are still authorized to use their Cessna. Uh, they don't say which kind of Cessna, but probably like a one seventy two or one eighty two. Yeah. Um, they are still authorized to do that, but they don't. One of the problems is that if you get a ticket from this kind of enforcement and you say, okay, I'm going to fight this and take it to court, well, the person that gave you the ticket in the patrol car and the pilot of the aerial reconnaissance uh, vehicle have to show up to to court. And that costs a lot of money. And so, yeah, it's not very effective. Well, apart from the cost of flying a helicopter or an airplane around uh, and the bloke on the ground just to catch a, a guy speeding, I'm going, well, you could you just put a speed gun out there. or yeah. If you've got a guy on the ground, just give him a speed gun. <laughs> but it, the but it is intimidating, though, when you see that sign. You know? I, I was thinking you'd have, to, you'd have to issue an awful lot of speeding tickets to cover this cost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Virginia does, having been to traffic court in Virginia. Oh, <laughs> There were a lot of people there that day. <laughs> Did you win? Uh, we'll call it a draw. Okay. Uh, <laughs> somehow I won and still had to pay the money. Oh, no Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, no low contender. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but um, I was not caught by the aircraft, just for what it's worth. I don't. So I guess when they, when they say on the sign, I think it's just a bad use of words. I don't think they really mean that the speed limits are enforced by aircraft. Aircraft may have something to do with judging whether or not you're exceeding a speed limit, but I don't think they actually enforce it with the aircraft. Right? 
Correct. Yeah. Or, or they could actually just put a machine gun in the airplane. And that would be enforcement. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, you're speeding. Sorry. That's it. Take you out now. You're gone. <laughs> 50, 50 kill coming over. <laughs> yeah. See if you can outrun this bullet. <laughs> Next thing they know, they're sitting in a warthog. Blow him up. <laughs> He's done. Yeah. I think there would be a lot less speeding. There would. <laughs> a lot less driving. <laughs> I can't uh, drive it. Thank you. Come on, you guys would turn it into a sport. <laughs> hey, JJ Pittsburgh, thank you. Great question. And uh, yeah, uh, now we know the truth. Um, James writes. Um, actually, he sent us some audio feedback. Let's hear it. Hey there, Captain Jeff, APG crew and APGers in APG land. James from Albuquerque here. Uh, just wanted to send a quick feedback. Uh, my wife was curious. We have just recently rewatched uh, Miracle on the Hudson, and she wanted to get the perspective of pilots and your personal opinions. Uh, put into that situation, would you have done things the same way, made the same decisions that Sully did? Or would you have done something differently and try to make it back to the to the airport or another airport? She just wants to get the opinion of real-life pilots. And I also am curious uh, what your thoughts are. Um, you know, knowing what we know that he made a good decision and, and, uh, saved a lot of people's lives. Um, you know, would, would you have thought about things the same or would you have thought maybe getting back to the airport was a safer bet? Uh, anyways, still enjoying the podcast. Uh, you guys keep it up and, uh, hope to see you guys soon at another meetup in New Mexico. Until then, safe landings. Clear skies and tailwinds. Thanks. Thanks, James. Um, first of all, I would not have hit the geese to begin with, so it's kind of a moot point, really. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Um, or at least do it in July, like they mentioned at the end of the movie. Yeah. A little warmer. So, <laughs> I don't think that we really can say what we would have done. Because having experienced that situation without any previous knowledge of this happening, you know, you, you have to just react. And there is absolutely no way that we can say, oh, I would have done this. Because you can't say that. Because we all know what happened. And so just uh, they kind of inferred that in the movie where they, you know, did the, the simulator scenarios and they found out that. These air crews could make it back to LaGuardia, could have made it over to um, uh, Teterboro. Um, but, you know, Sully didn't know that. Uh, and Jeff Sykes did not know that at that moment. Uh, they just had to use their perception of the situation, analyze it, and uh, take the appropriate action. And they thought the appropriate action was a sure thing. I see the Hudson River. I can put it down there. Um, but, you know, after the fact, there are so many ways you can, you know, parse this whole thing out and say, yeah, we could have, based on the data at this altitude and this distance from the LaGuardia airport, you could have made it, you know, 
with no engines. Yeah, but they did not know that. You know that because you have that data. But well, I think the more the more interesting question is, you know, what takeaways as you do you as a pilot take from that situation? You know, you really look at their crew resource management, their decision making skills, and try to emulate that. In my opinion, you know, just taking in the big picture, knowing what you have at your disposal, what you don't have at your disposal. Um, I mean, gosh, New York and New Jersey, that area around the city is just so densely populated. I don't think any pilot in the moment in their right mind would try to turn back over a populated area when they have another alternative. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's so many variables to that. Uh, you know, he might have had partial thrust on an engine. He might have had it happen at an earlier altitude or a later altitude. And there are so many variables to to put yourself in exactly that position with exactly that problem is uh, never going to happen. It was a one in a million event. And uh, the chances of having your bird strikes destroy both engines at exactly that point on a departure. Um, uh, it's just so remote as to be almost uh, counterproductive imagining yourself through that scenario because when it happens to one of you guys, not me anymore, thank the Lord, um, it's going to be in a slightly different scenario. And if you've got it in your head that the safest thing to do is to land it in a river, uh, you, that might actually bias you towards turning for an airfield that you might still get to. So uh, sometimes uh, thinking through these scenarios can prepare you to do something that is not actually appropriate when it happens to you because the situation isn't quite the same. So true. Oh, and by the way, I said uh, Jeff Sykes, and it's actually oh. Jeff yeah. Skiles. Thank you, Liz, for pointing that out. Sorry about 49% that. 49% again. I know. Sorry. <laughs> Bringing us down. <laughs> Um, Dana, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I was going to say that it's Monday, Mac, Monday morning quarterbacking. Um, you know, we, we can all sit back and evaluate and, and try to think about as, as Nick so eloquently put, uh, what we would do and how we would handle it. And, but every variable is different and we can, you know, we have the luxury of time to sit back and, and, and make those decisions and, and, and try to analyze that. I can't sit back and make those decisions and, and analyze that because I wasn't there and uh, didn't have all the parameters that uh, were in my mind at that time because I wasn't there. So I can't really put myself in his shoes per se and make, and, and make a judgment call based on what he saw at that time. All I can do is if I was in that situation and I can't predict what my situation would be, that I hope that I would make the right call versus trying to predict what the right call should be. Yeah. And by the way, for those of you in the chat room, not amusing at all. Sorry, they're they're they're, they're coming up with ideas for a uh, a Sully remake um, based on the APG crew, and they're suggesting that Wilford Brimley or Colonel Sanders, for my part, play you in the APG movie. Yeah, and Colonel Sanders is not even alive, so that's not even funny. Kevin James, my word, Kevin James, <laughs> and Sandra Bullock for 
then um, that's complimentary. Yeah, I'll take no, that's, that's, that's I like Lane, that. That's good. Jim Belushi, I'll take that. I, I like, uh, yeah, right, everybody's right. is really, really nice except for mine. So thank you very much, everybody in the chat. Jim Belushi dead as well. You're all dead to me. <laughs> John okay. Belushi. John Belushi, yeah. Jim's still alive. Jim's still alive. As far oh, as okay. we know. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, <sighs> okay. I think that's enough of that. Unless you guys want to talk about it a little bit more. Thanks, thanks, James Graves Brown. For that's true. Steve Horn did say Harrison Ford. For me? Yeah. Oh, I love you, Steve. Sean Connery for uh, Captain Nick. That's nice. Mm. Okay. Um, five. Brandon sent in some audio feedback regarding. A discussion we had about standard radio phraseology on an earlier episode. And um, just a reminder, Brandon is the host of the very, very wonderful podcast called Podcasting on a Plane. Hey, APG crew, it's Brandon here from the tower. And guess what? I have some comments on Blaster Bill's title feedback from Flight 375. First off, Blaster Bill's comments are using standard ICAO phraseology. Well, I think they're basically dead on. Aviation is global in nature, and thus, it's reasonable that we have standardization everywhere, which of course is a central reason for ICAO's existence, right? Well, as a controller in the U.S., I can see that we do struggle with this sometimes because our phraseology, well, it isn't always 100% ICAO aligned, but usually it's close enough not to cause a problem, unless of course we go rogue with slang, which I think was his central point. As Captain Nick and Dr. Steph mentioned, we often exist in a bubble in the United States for a number of reasons. And many pilots and controllers and room makers can work an entire career here and have very little concern with how it's done elsewhere. But that's unique, because pretty much nowhere else in the world can say that. And it's hard to keep that in perspective sometimes. We do make an effort to align with the rest of the world, though. And one of the most notable changes in the relatively recent past was the change to line up and wait from position and hold, which was a major confusion point for a lot of foreign pilots. Dana mentioned also the pilot controller glossary, which is an amazing resource for pilots in the U.S. to learn the phraseology they can expect to use when they're operating in the ATC system. But the actual manual with all of the required phraseology is called the 7110.65. Awesome name, right? Well, it's a government order, and orders like that follow a numbering system. It's pretty good, and it's not unlike the Dewey Decimal System, although it does lack some artistic creativity. But that's our manual, and everything we use is in it. We need to stick to the phraseology in there, and we need to say it at a rate that's understandable to the receiver. And here, of course, is where things get a little sticky. Here's why. First, the uniqueness of the USA is that, as far as I know, we sling way more traffic in our system than just about anywhere else in the world. From the smallest airports up to the biggest ones, and all the way up into the flight levels, our system capacity is really high. And yet it's still packed a great deal of the time. And when things get busy, they get really busy. And when they do, well, sometimes us controllers can't talk even half as fast as we're thinking, and even that is at least double as fast as anybody else can understand. So, when the auctioneer voice starts coming out, sometimes it's hard to notice until the pilots start asking us to say again, please, slower. And unfortunately, regional accents and dialects come into play here too. Right, Captain Dana? If you've got a thick accent, well, sometimes you don't know others aren't getting it, even if you're still technically speaking English. I know all the New York jokes revolve around this. I remember my training class way back when there was a kid from, guess what, New York, and he had a really thick accent. The voice recognition in the simulator understood him 
maybe 50% of the time on a good day. Training wasn't easy for him. Interestingly enough, though, if you're ever flying in Southern California, like maybe around Orange County, like in the John Wayne Airport area, there's a female voice you might hear there, and she has probably the thickest accent I've ever heard from a controller voice in the U.S. A coworker says that she's Eastern European, but I can't verify that. I can't place it. What I do know, though, is that despite the accent, she speaks in such a deliberate and effective manner that the accent, it doesn't even matter. Listening to her work traffic is kind of like a case study in global standardization, and that it really does work, no matter where you're from. Because at the end of the day, voice communication is pretty much all we've got, right? And if it isn't effective, well, then what's the point? It's totally reasonable that pilots can expect things to be the same no matter where they are, and that we controllers know and stick to the script while we guide you around and keep you safe. But one last point I wanted to bring up is that at an airport like mine, there's a great deal of stuff that isn't directly covered by the .65 or ICAO. And the reason is that there are so many non-standard operations and requests, mainly due to high training density. The .65 covers all the routine stuff just fine, and even quite a bit about non-routine stuff too, but eventually we are going to get down to something that doesn't have a script anymore, and we're going to have to do some improv. Believe it or not, that's actually covered too, right in the beginning, where the book talks about our duty priority and exercising our best judgment when necessary. Luckily, there's enough unmistakable phraseology buzzwords with clear meaning that we can piece something together in a non-standard situation that still makes sense, without the use of slang, which of course is probably left as a less-than-popular Def Leppard album and not as part of radio communications, but I digress. Anyway, one last place a little deviance might not be too bad is during that last transmission I have for you on my frequency. If it's not too busy, I like to throw in a small pleasantry in there like safe flight or so long, or my all-time favorite, good day, which, while outside the script, is in my experience usually understood just fine and usually appreciated too. Bravo Golf out. Good day. Good day. Thank you. Excellent discussion of that. Bravo Golf. Now, Brandon... This is the APG, not yeah. opposing bases podcast. Yeah. I think all of the uh, the air traffic controllers have just adopted this. Apparently method. so. This is like, come on, we can I use like real it. names. Yeah. He was in the chat room earlier, but he had to go back to work. Ah. Oh, sorry, I missed him. And that was way too professional for our show. I know, I shouldn't have played it. That was excellent. <laughs> was. He, I think he took what we were all trying to say and kind of fumbled over for a while and yeah. made it into a nice, concise, pretty yeah. package with a bow on top. Very, very, yeah. very well covered, very logical, loved it. Yeah, very again, different. probably shouldn't have played that. Liz, next time, don't put Shut that in the folder. All right. Uh, Thank you, Brandon. We love you. Goes without saying. Hey, but that's increased our... Um, percentage that's true mm -hmm. yeah we're probably up to about 55 right now yeah yeah i think so 53 at least at least <laughs> not 55 come on um uh, i got yeah i've i've done some work against that today all right steph <laughs> stop talking um item six larry gregory says from avweb best radio call i ever got to make I was a student pilot in the U.S. Air Force on my T-38 cross-country. Our final leg was a short hop from Albuquerque to home at Reese Air Force Base in Lubbock, Texas. Of course, all surplus gas would be consumed with approach and landing practice. Uh, 
Departing Albuquerque, the Tracon asked for a expedited climb to something like flight level 220 and a report passing every 2,000 feet. With the blessing of my instructor, I had the true privilege of lighting both afterburners, pitching up, keying the mic, and saying, Re-69, passing 12,000, 14,000, 16,000, flight level 180, flight level 200, leveling flight level 220, and then releasing the mic. Climb rate in full afterburner exceeded 6,000 feet per minute. Oh yeah, a lot more than that, which was the mechanical limit of our vertical speed indicator, our VSI. And that was from Jim McIrvin in Warrington, Virginia. Yeah, if you, uh, in a T-38 with a full afterburner, um, and I'm sure it was very similar to uh, afterburner climbs in the F-4 for uh, Nick and the F-18, probably even more impressive in the F-18. Um, yeah, it uh, it happens very, very quickly. Probably 15 to 20,000 feet per minute, I would imagine, probably. Well, I think initially it would be close on to 40,000 feet a minute, but yeah. it backs off, of course, as you uh, lose your energy and the engines become slightly less efficient. But uh, yeah. I think I would pass out. It's oh, you know you'd love it. Steph. No, you wouldn't, Steph. No, would, no. Okay. It would be. It's just. I'm so just imagining all of the blood, like as I'm pitched straight up, just you know, pooling in my spine and not perfusing my brain anymore. Your adrenaline is flowing, and it's just like such a rush. It's just amazing. It's just amazing to see that. Well, I'd love to give it after a burner climb. Yeah, you should. So the Thunderbirds out there. This is Stephanie, not Captain Al. She uh, yes. would love I to like have a ride. You guys are great. I'm <laughs> happy to say nice things about you. You could go with the Angels, not the Thunderbirds. Well, you uh, know, either way, I'm not. I'm not terribly picky. Steph has never said anything negative about either of these. Either either team, and I've actually, yeah. I've seen the Thunderbirds multiple times. I have yet to see the Blue Angels. What? Every time I show up at an air show, it's the huh. Thunderbirds in the U.S. I should say. Oh, you need to see that. Better. They're flying F-18s, for heaven's sake. Yeah, the Blue Angels put on a really This nice was not show. by my design. It just, yeah. that's how it's happened. All right. How are we doing on the time? Are we at the two-hour point yet? Who knows? Is it over know. yet? <laughs> what time is it? <laughs> I don't know. She hasn't given me the uh, two-hour warning half, yet. No, halfway through the show was at 6.30. That was 18 minutes ago. Oh, okay. Well, let's keep so going. It was a 10-minute warning before the two-hour mark. I love this. We're getting a lot of uh, feedback accomplished here um oh our good friend john brown or jd as he likes to refer to himself again this is not that podcast this is the apg but he's going to talk about that podcast okay well all right let's play this feedback then i guess Hello, APG crew. This is John Brown, alias Juliet Bravo, who uh, has flown to the secret lair at Triad with my trusty first officer, Chris, or also known as Charlie Papa. And so we've just spent a delightful hour with AG and RH, uh, helping them record episode number 564 of Opposing Bases. <laughs> so I'd just like to have Chris uh, say a word or two and then go... Pass it along to uh, AG&RH. Oh, thanks, John. Uh, 
I must say, I, I would love to see where I am, but unfortunately, the black hood you've made me wear to keep the layer secret kind of spoils it a bit. Um, I've always wanted to know what AG looks like. I sort of got a glimpse of RH once on a Twitter post, but uh, the black hood is impenetrable to light. But it has been good listening to the boys. And uh, yeah, thanks. We had a great flight down and looking forward to a great flight back and looking forward to removing the hood as we cross the border. Hey, what's going on, APG? It's AG. Um, I find it interesting that uh, you guys are a, a stone's throw away down I-85 from the secret lair, and yet someone flew in a small plane 500 miles from another country to visit us, and we struggle to get you guys up here uh, on a destination that frequently is, in your, uh, is on your route. Uh, anyway, um, still, uh, still loving the show. Keep doing what you're doing and I'll pass it off to RH. Hey, it's Romeo Hotel. I want to say thank you to Chris and John for coming down to, uh, have our first face-to-face -face visit. Alpha Golf has revealed his face. Their, uh, hoods will be removed for dinner. It will be awkward if we should... <laughs> If you didn't hear that, uh, that was a compliment, I'm sure. Um, we will have to take the, the hoods off for dinner. It will be frowned upon in this country to bring our guests in, uh, in headgear. So they will see where we are going. And uh, it was great having you guys. We decided to do a, a quick show today and record a show a couple days in advance and uh, give a shout out to all the APG listeners. I think most of our audience started, um, you know, back at the beginning, came from your show. And uh, we, we really appreciate that and all the help you've given us over the years. So thanks again to Chris and John and uh, to all the APG listeners. Have a have a great week and check it out if you want to hear Chris and John on our show. It's episode 74. We're not quite up to the 500s yet. So, all right. Thank you. Thanks, RH. Uh, so, back to uh, Jeff and the crew in the studio. Juliet Bravo out. Uh, so great to hear from all of you. You all are loved so much by all of us here at the ABG. Well, I feel so ashamed right now. Like, I feel like that was an official call out. Well, you know I what? Fly to try it. I was listening to their show as I was traveling to Elon and, and my hotel. You drove right past I was them. staying in the secret lair. You were, you were in the secret lair. Did you have to drive there with a, a hood over your head? So you wouldn't yeah, know where I did. You were going? And I had some issues Strange. with keeping it on the road. But yeah. You got uh, that lane departure warning system in your car, right? Yeah, it, that's what yeah. kept me alive. But uh, Yes. Opposing bases seventy four is out now as of two days ago. Go listen. Great, great podcast. Yeah. Um, so, as is Brandon's uh, podcasting on a plane. I mean, so many, mm -hmm. so many fantastic aviation shows, especially recently the uh, you know podcasting on a plane and opposing bases with that air traffic control kind of point of view is really educating for uh, for all of us. I, mm -hmm. I've been learning a lot myself. So. And All right. uh, well, love the they, they were having a bit of a dig at us, but uh, I'm yeah. just going to return the compliment because I sent in some feedback answering one of their questions of the week, and that was like three months ago. And they said, oh, yeah, Captain Nick, we'll get back to your feedback. And, like, I'm still waiting. And this is where they're going to turn around and say, Steph said she was sending something in a year ago. 
and never managed to do it. <laughs> now you've reminded them you shouldn't have said that. I know. I got to think of new feedback because I can't remember what it was. It was something good. Uh, maybe I'll dig uh, it up. Now I don't know if, now I can't remember if they've actually covered it or not, but maybe I'll yeah. just bring it back up just in case. Yeah. You know? yeah. But challenge you know, accepted. I will, I will come. Uh, Dana and I did visit with RH. Yeah. And I just did come back from seeing RH, uh, what, two weeks ago? Yeah. yeah. So what was that all about? Yeah, no kidding, huh? Yeah. And that's before he record, just recorded this one. I know. <laughs> wow. What's up Talk, that? Talking about dissing. Huh? I tell you what. Man. You know what? Okay. Liz, scratch anything that has anything to do with um, posing bases, okay? We don't want to hear from that show anymore. Never again. Yeah. They're dead well, to us. Dead that's to us. two podcasters we've <laughs> scratched <laughs> in one show. That's we're, good, wow. we're really thinning, we're thinning it out. Here. <laughs> Ruthless. Yeah. Wow, Jeff. Yeah. Well, you know, you just got to get serious, right? Definitely. Okay. Um, no, just kidding, of course. Uh, we love them all. My 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 house smells amazing, by the way. I just want to put that out there. That's why you miss me for, for I've been listening downstairs, but uh, my house smells amazing. Just saying. <laughs> well, I don't want to. This is it. just message <laughs> saying, right, no, Brandon, no opposing bases. Got it. Yep. yep. That's right, <laughs> Liz. You got so it. it. So the senior producer has going to put a put that down. Put that on block. Okay. Uh, Pasadena Brian from another aviation podcast. Um, he writes in and says, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Captain Dana, Dr. Steph, and the lovely Liz. Hi there. I hope all is well with all the crew. This question is mostly for Captain Jeff and Captain Nick. Although I'm assuming Captain Dana will someday care about this answer. As both of you rapidly approach your lack of employment day, Captain Nick reaching his first, I'm listening, wondering how your lack of employment, I mean, retirement systems work. On a few shows now, Captain Nick has talked about how he is paid on a salary. Captain Jeff is paid on a more hourly rate based mostly on hours flown. Therefore, when it comes to retirement, how do they calculate your retirement pay? Is it a set amount? Is it based on the average rate of pay over the past three years or something completely different? Yes, I'm not wanting to know your specific pay, but how the systems work in general. As it seems like your flying pay differs, I'm assuming your retirement pay will differ as well. As always, thank you guys so much for doing such a great job on the podcast. Happy chemtrails. <laughs> thank you. Pasadena, Brian. And he says, I'm PS. I'm no longer the associate producer of the airline geeks podcast. However, I have retained the title of contributing editor. And just in case you're wondering the pay for both of these jobs, like most jobs in the podcast world are the same goose egg. <laughs> Nothing. Okay. Uh, this is a good question. Uh, how are we compensated if at all? And when we retire, Captain Nick. Well, um, there are two main systems in the UK that I know of, um, one of which is um, based on your salary, and you get a proportion of your salary, usually based on, say, what you averaged out the last few years of your employment, and that's paid to you. But that uh, system is very much out of favor because there are a lot of uh, pension schemes that are basically run out of money because... You know, when a company gets so big, eventually it just stops being able to 
put enough money in this pot uh, to pay all the uh, retirees. So a much more common scheme is something like a group money purchase scheme, and that's just um, the money uh, the company contribute uh, a percentage of your pay. You have to contribute a similar percentage. The two are combined, and then that little bucket of money is put to one side, usually with an investment uh, company, and that uh, builds up. Uh, during your employment, and you basically, uh, you know, just keep pouring into that bucket until you uh, retire, and then whatever's in there, um, you then have to invest or perhaps turn into an annuity, depending on what options you've got, uh, to then live off uh, for the rest of your life. So um, that's the uh, that's the, the system that I'm in. Now, the only other system I've heard of is, uh, say, someone like Cathay Pacific. Now. Uh, this is based on pilots who joined, you know, quite a, quite a while ago. I know that they were given a provident fund, so basically they were just given a cash handout to them when they retired. I think they had to do at least 15 years, and it was close to one, uh, I think about a million pounds, I think, sterling in those days. And that was just a lump sum, boom, here you go, off you go, do what you want with it. Um, so, uh, you know, that was another system. What they do now, I don't know. But I think it depends on the company and how they're financed and, uh, you know, how the pilots uh, um, perceive what is a good deal for them and uh, what the company can afford. So, I, I don't know. What's it like in the States, Jeff? So, uh, as you said, it depends on the airline and it depends on the window of time. When I was hired 30 years ago by Acme Airlines, the system was amazing. It was our pension was based upon the best, I think, three out of the last five or 10 years of your of your service. And you got a 60 percent of that of that amount for your retirement. And in fact, I think half of that uh, was advertised so that you could uh, get a lump sum which meant that many of these pilots that were flying for Acme at the time that were uh, hired prior to 1972 were getting uh, lump sum payments, half lump sum payments of one to two million dollars. And then they were also receiving, uh, I don't know, six thousand dollars a month or something like that for their retirement pay. And it was just like, wow, I mean, I can't believe that we could get anything better than that. Well, uh, when we suffered bad times in the airline industry here in the United States, and then you know bankruptcy, nine eleven, all that, uh, we basically at Acme agreed to uh, dissolve that uh, pension benefit, and uh, so we no longer have that, and that was to help uh, keep the airline uh, running. And now it's more of a what do they call that? A defined benefit, I guess, or yeah. Divine benefit versus a divine contribution. So, it's um, you know, the company puts a certain amount, a certain percentage of your pay into a four hundred one k, and then of course we are um, allowed to contribute a certain amount uh, to that retirement fund. But basically, it's much more uh, individually financed or managed than it used to be. Um, but uh, I don't know. Anything else to add, Dana? No, oh, Dana's gone. Um, 
Anyway, so that's the way it works, at least at Acme. But it, again, it depends on the individual airline here in the U.S. They're they're all different, and um, it's uh, not as great as a as it used to be, but uh, still uh, better than nothing. Yeah, don't forget though that uh, I'm going to mention this only because I hate the system. A lot of our uh, airlines here, so in fact, one of the biggest airlines in Europe, Ryanair, I think. Uh, uh, I might not get this exactly right, but because the great majority of their pilots are effectively self-employed, uh, they are given a contract by a third party who then uh, contracts their work to Ryanair, so they're not directly employed by Ryanair. They won't get any kind of a pension at all. So they will. The only way they're going to get a pension is to uh, save, uh, make their own saving pot, uh, and I think that's a that's a pretty dire way to. Unless you're getting a really really uh, good uh, salary, that is a dire way to try and build up a uh, a retirement fund. Yeah, I'm b- I'm back, Jeff. I was listening to you. Yes, I you know as far as. Uh, what uh, Acme has to offer, I, I actually like the defined benefit better. You know, there's a lot of uh, people out there that would like to have the uh, the uh, um, pension back, but I like to have the control over my money. So, sorry, I just ran up the stairs, <sighs> trying to catch my breath. <laughs> okay. Easy, easy. <sighs> so, anyways, yeah, I, I think uh, <clears throat> you know, in the states, it's it's gone the way of a. Uh, a most pensions, unless you're a government employee, I think a lot of uh, pensions are gone by the wayside now. And it's all, yeah. all going to be a 401k and, uh, you know, whatever you can put into a, um, a money market account or um, Roth IRAs. And, you know, you, you're more responsible for your money and, and not dependent upon the company to providing that. And, and as we saw, as you mentioned, uh, Acme went through that tough time. A lot of those uh, pensions went away and, and guys were kind of left hanging hanging out there with, with no real way of making money mm-hmm. for quite a while. So um, I, I think the uh, the ability for us to control our money is a much much better option. And uh, I like the way it's working. And we just need to, you know, hopefully get a little bit more. And maybe you know, there's a couple other avenues that can that can happen uh, that uh, we're talking about and could uh, actually provide us some benefit as well. But we'll have to yeah. wait and see how that comes about. Right. Uh, you know, part of our contract negotiations, I, I don't like to talk about that kind of thing on the show. But one of the things that our uh, Acme union is trying to negotiate is trying to return back to those good old days of the uh, of the pension um, benefit. Um, not sure where that's going to go. Um, but, you know, I agree, Dana, that, you know, uh, being responsible for your own retirement um funding is is a way to go but when you as long as you know that that's what you have to do <laughs> when you when you start your career and assume that it's going to be a certain thing and then all of a sudden halfway through it um it just dissolves and yeah. now you're back to square one and thinking oh, okay now I'm responsible for doing this all on my own you know it's it's a uh, it's kind of a frustrating thing but and I and I can I can I can definitely see that point, Jeff. And, and, mm-hmm. and what it was is it's complete blindside. Now, if there was a yeah. transition of some sort, saying, "Hey, this is what's going to happen. Prepare." Yeah, you know, this is what we're planning on. Instead of being stonewalled, and that's exactly what happened. Right, Steph. So I, how about your uh, system? 
Oh, no, I, I have never been in a position where a pension or anything like that was ever even an option. So from day one, it's been save your own money, make sure it's well invested. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, tax advantaged plans are really important. Yes. I'm sorry. I think I cut you off, Dana. Go ahead. Did you have nope. something else to No, nope, I have nothing else to say. Nope. Okay. Well, that's a, that was a great question, Brian. And um, I hope that that helped to answer that. And uh, I think now would be a good time to go with our weekly installment of the best part of the show, which is the old pilot's plane tales. And this week's episode is entitled RAF Form 14, Volume 3. Here we go. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 3. Time for a little more self-indulgence, as this is an auspicious month for aviation anniversaries in the Old Pilot's world. We last left my logbook tale as I completed the F-4 Phantom II Operational Conversion Unit and received my posting to the wilds of Scotland to join number 43F Squadron, the Fighting Cox, at RAF Lucas in Fife. To put this into perspective, it was May 1978, the year that Space Invaders became a thing, that the movie Close Encounters came out, and the very first Garfield comic strip cartoon was published. Although I didn't know it at the time, it was also the anniversary of the very first flight of the Phantom II. It was on May 26, 1955, that four Navy officers arrived at the McDonnell Douglas offices and, within an hour, had presented the company with a set of requirements for a new all-weather fighter. They wanted a fleet defence fighter that could patrol 250 miles from its carrier, loiter there for two hours, and be capable of bringing down anything that might come its way. McDonnell Douglas had previously lost out to Chance Vought with an aircraft design, but they had continued to work at building an aircraft that they felt the military actually needed. With the funding available, the design progressed into the XF-4H1, which made its maiden flight on May the 27th, 1958. I was three years old. In May, 20 years later, I had joined my first fighter squadron to fly F-4Ks, or as the RAF designated them, the Phantom FG-1, referring to its roles as a fighter and a ground attack aircraft. 43 Squadron had been reformed and converted to the F-4 in 1969, when the 20 aircraft that had been earmarked for HMS Eagle were diverted to the Royal Air Force, after the cost of refitting the carrier to fly the Phantom became too high for the government to stomach. After the arrival of the Sepicat Jaguar GR1s, the RAF F4s gave up their ground attack role and became purely an air defence asset. When I started flying on 43, the aircraft was still in their youth, being only nine years old, 
but when I did my last flight on them some eight years later, they were definitely starting to show their age. The squadron I had joined had an impressive history. It had first been formed on the 15th of April 1916 in the shadow of Stirling Castle in Scotland, and it operated various types until a few months later it was equipped with the Sopworth 1.5 Strutter and deployed to the Western Front to carry out fighter reconnaissance duties. During the First World War it flew the Sopworth Camel and the Snipe as well, but distinguished itself producing ten fighter aces. After the war, it was reformed with snipes, but was soon given the Gloucester Gamecock, from which it gained its name and distinctive black-and-white checkers. As the Second World War loomed, the fighting cocks were flying the Hawker Hurricane, and in early 1940 they were the first squadron to down an enemy aircraft over British soil. 43 covered the retreat from Dunkirk and then fought in the Battle of Britain from the famous fighter airfield of RAF Tangbia, near the south coast and in the thick of the fighting. As a youngster, and after the old airfield had been relegated to become a parachute-dropping target, it also became home to number 623 Gliding School, and from its historic runways, I was to fly my first ever solo flight in a glider. I was there in 1968 when the airfield officially closed. As the RAF ensign was lowered for the final time, a single Spitfire flew over in salute. 43 was to continue on, however, and by the end of the war they had been based from Scotland to Sicily and many points in between. At the conclusion of the war, they were disbanded only to reform in the jet age, first with Gloucester Meteors and then with the Hawker Hunter, with much of their flying being done in the Middle East out of Aden. When they moved from there, it was to reform with the Phantom at Lucas. In my quiet moments, I would leaf through the old handwritten squadron diaries, which were kept in glass cases in our crew room, and marvel at the exploits of those pilots who had gone before. Being tall and with a fairly new uniform, I was soon given the formal duty of squadron standard bearer. The standard was the equivalent of a regiment's colour, a traditional rallying point in battle. This beautiful heavy silk flag was mounted on a long wooden staff topped with a golden eagle. On the standard, in fine silk thread, was embroidered the squadron crest and its battle honours, from the Western Front, Ypres and the Somme, to the Battle of Britain, North Africa and Anzia. When the squadron was disbanded recently, Following the retirement of the F-3 tornado from service, the standard was laid up in the Church of the Holy Rood in Stirling, the squadron's birthplace. Joining such a famous unit was daunting enough, but in addition they had a strong cadre of very experienced crews. Apparently they hadn't had to put up with any new pilots for some time and weren't too pleased to have the irksome job of bringing a new driver up to combat-ready status. For me, it meant another six months of training. 
Our venerable Squadron QFI, John Abel, was the first to be subjected to my flying skills with a dual check before the lovely navigator Bob Lawley led me around the diversions that we might use in the local area. It seemed that it was traditional to beat up each airfield in turn, a task that I enjoyed enormously. Then came my night dual check, which, after managing to get all the upper air work done, concluded with a number of night circuits in various configurations and heights. Nearing the end of the trip, I heard a loud metallic clang from the left side, and after a nervous glance outside, before I remembered it was night and I couldn't see anything, I spotted the left engine was getting very hot indeed. With the turbine gas temperature reaching 900 degrees centigrade, John suggested that I shut it down and we could make the next circuit a single-engined one to land. It turned out that the two-sticker, the aircraft on the squadron that could be flown from the back seat, had a dodgy ramp controller. The moving ramp was part of the intake design that would deflect at high speed to create a series of supersonic shock waves inside the intake, which slowed the air entering the engine and improved its performance. However, when the ramp cycled itself at circuit speed, it disrupted the airflow sufficient to surge the engine, leading to the overtemperature. For me, it was my first ever engine failure, but listening to John's calm voice and his matter-of-fact approach to the emergency taught me a very valuable lesson. It would serve me well in the several engine failures that I would deal with in the future. Very quickly, I was back into training mode and off with Andy Kirk for the first of my convex trips, learning about the sharp end of being a fighter pilot. I had tried this trip the day before, but the mic tell lead that connected the electrics in my helmet to the aircraft had stopped working soon after takeoff, left with no way to communicate to either my navigator or the outside world. I tried shouting to my nav and even took off my helmet to try and fix the problem. This is when I discovered the noise levels that existed in the cockpit of an F4. Inside the protective earpieces of the helmet, the cockpit noise averaged around 90 decibels. I can't quite describe how painful it was to momentarily experience the unadulterated noise of two mighty spade jet engines only a few feet behind me. I quickly realised how useless it was to try and shout over it, so resorted to scribbling on a sheet of paper and holding it up in one of the few gaps between the cockpits where the nav could see through. I assumed that I got my message through, so headed back to Lucas and did a no-radio join and landed off a green flare shot from the runway controller's caravan. As an aside, I reflew the trip with Andy Kirk, but it was only today that I looked to see who I flew my very last Phantom trip with some eight years later. By an amazing coincidence, it was also Andy. By then, I was both a qualified flying instructor and weapons instructor, and I was filling in for a few weeks flying with the operational conversion unit as a Phantom flying instructor before deploying to Australia to work with the Royal Australian Air Force. Andy, now a squadron leader, was doing a quick refresher course before taking up a flying post. We did an air combat sortie together, and it was a very fitting end to my time with the Phantom. 
I should get back to the beginning, though. Whilst I was thoroughly enjoying myself driving this manic fire-breathing beast around, the summer was drifting by. It was only for a short time in midsummer when the coastal waters off Scotland rose above 10 degrees and we got a break from flying in our full immersion suits. The rubberized, uncomfortable gear that would keep us alive should we eject over the North Sea and the thick bunny suits we wore underneath would keep us warm enough, but the cockpit of the Phantom wasn't like a cold sea. We got appallingly hot and sweaty. The room where we kitted up before a trip was testament to the blood, sweat and tears that went into the average trip, and it smelled like a wrestler's armpit. I learned new arts like airway refueling and fighting in an ECM, Electronic Countermeasures Environment, when 100 Squadron Canberras would delight in jamming both our radar and our radios whilst we blundered about trying to hunt them down. Apart from turning our radar scopes into a mess of green gloop, I have to admit that the radar generally looked like green gloop to me, they would try to trick us on the radio. They had a number of tactics, like pretending to be our fighter controller and giving false vectors, or better still, recording the controller and then playing instructions back to us. They played music to blot out our comms or just very loud electronic noises, to cover up the voice of our controllers. Once I got my air combat duel check out of the way and the low-level manoeuvring tests passed, the flying became even more interesting. Now I could get my teeth properly into air combat and I loved nothing better than being able to rack six Gs around in full burner and get through a whole mission in only 45 minutes. Then the squadron deployed to the Norwegian Air Force Station at Gardermoen. I was allowed along, which was fantastic, my first overseas trip. We took a bunch of aircraft supported by two Hercules C-130s, one full of ground equipment and spares, and one with our duty-free bar. We knew from experience that booze was very expensive in Norway and that a lot of wheels could be oiled with a bottle or two of good Scottish whisky. The Norwegians were very good hosts and great pilots in their little Northrop F-5 fighters. Their airfield was surrounded with tall pines through which taxiways wove leading to the entrances of hangars that had literally been carved out of rock and were guarded by thick steel doors. Some of our equipment was stored in a small old-fashioned wooden-framed hangar, and looking around inside I could see swastikas carved into the beams. Not some right-wing graffiti, but the official insignia of the Nazis who had occupied the airfield during the war. Back home it was more training for me. Night air-to-air refuelling, and then came my first major NATO exercise, Northern Wedding. 43 Squadron was Sackland assigned, that's Supreme Allied Commander Atlantic, which meant we spent a lot of our time flying enormous distances to defend a fleet who often shot us down out of ignorance or spite. In this exercise, there was a large NATO fleet punting around the eastern Atlantic area, and I got the chance to test my bladder's capacity flying TASMO, that's Tactical Air Support for Maritime Operations, or ADOPS, Air Defense Operations, under the control of USS Forrestal and USS Mount Whitney. 
It was during one of these tanker-supported flights that I stayed airborne for 6 hours and 55 minutes and could have found it a bit boring, except this mission was about to become the most exciting of my life so far. We had been capping, flying combat air patrol, some 50-odd miles away from the fleet and several hundred miles from our base, and it had been pretty quiet. There hadn't been many targets to intercept, and we were just drilling holes in the sky when our American controller vectored us off to look at something he described as some visitors from the east. Unsure what that meant, I was buoyed up by Tony, my nerves, sudden interest in the proceedings. A pair of Tupolov Tu-95 bears were bearing down, see what I did there, on the fleet. This was to be my very first Cold War intercept and as I swung our jet around onto the rearmost aircraft, I struggled to take it all in. The vast silver bombers sporting their classic red stars were descending in trail and were about to pass over the center of the fleet. I sat on the wing of both these aircraft and the noise of the vast propellers filled the cockpit as they wended their way around at a mere thousand feet, presumably photographing the vessels of many NATO nations. It was truly a sight to behold, and I cursed that I didn't have a camera to record the event. Back home, having survived that bladder-busting mission, the average mission length for that week of flying was over four hours, I realised that I'd done something that many pilots had never achieved. I'd seen the face of our Cold War enemy, and I wasn't even combat ready yet. That event was to come a few days later, with the successful flying of my Phase 3 Visident checkride. The Visident was a visual identification that, for the Phase 3 check, had to be flown against a lights-out target at night and at low level. Closing up using the radar, the pilot would follow the navigator's instructions until they became visual and could continue to close into close formation. It required a gentle touch, smooth, accurate flying, plus the difficult task of maintaining a good instrument scan whilst visually looking out into the inky blackness for anything that resembled an aircraft. The check successfully out of the way, and I was fully operational. But there was one more task yet to perform, one not quite so taxing. On Friday, after ground training, the whole squadron assembled in the crew room to watch me quaff a quart of beer from the large pewter op pot. Without taking it from my lips and draining it until it could be held upside down over my head. But the most fun moment was shaking the squadron commander's hand and receiving the squadron badge to wear on my flying suit, the famous fighting cock with the squadron motto, Gloria Finis. Glory is the end. Wow. Another great plane tale. Thank you, Captain Nick. Oh, well, thank you, sir. Uh, that very self-indulgent, that one. <laughs> when, when you were doing the um, that last... Oh, I forgot to turn off the uh, air conditioning. It's making a lot of noise. Sorry. Uh, 
when you were doing the last part of the uh, plane tail there, where you were doing the low level at night checkout. Um, so were you uh, using VNAV or what kind of uh, auto flight were you using? <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? Because, uh, yeah, um, we, I was li you literally listen to a commentary from the navigator um, and you're flying entirely on instruments uh, and he's just saying uh, speed up two, speed up three knots, uh, left two degrees, left one degree, uh, you know, and you're he's controlling all aspects of the aircraft so it's a real crew coordination uh exercise uh and uh, he very slowly tracks you in until you get to uh the, the sort of minimum approach height when you're actually only i'm trying to remember exactly how far away you're less than 100 feet away probably it might have been a little more than that but um at that point um you've got to be able to try and visually acquire this aircraft uh, on a moonless night or with an overcast sky looking down against a target that's lights out against the black sea is uh is you know and please don't it, tell me you were hand flying the airplane yeah yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> get a hand flying there yeah there's that there was yeah. no system to do it uh and so you and what's more you've got the cockpit lights turned down so low so that you've got good night vision that uh, it was really hard to see the instruments as well and hand fly and you know everything so um you know it was it was quite a a, a task and we always sweated we sweated like pigs doing that it wasn't hot doing one of those because you're not rolling around at high speed usually you're flying at kind of a, a bomber speed uh but you're concentrating so hard and each one like took 10 or 15 minutes to accomplish so what was it was uh yeah it was a real trick flying <laughs> so how old were you i guess 21 uh <laughs> somewhere around there yeah <laughs> so night vision is at optimum yeah yeah in those days you see quite well yeah. <laughs> Now, my uh, night vision, not so great. No. In fact, my vision, hearing, <laughs> and oh, many man. other bodily functions <laughs> I'd rather not go into. Easy. <laughs> They're not so great either. <laughs> There's one thing I can still do, but I'd rather not talk about that on the show. <laughs> Chew your own food? <laughs> I've just seen. <laughs> I was going oh, to say something. No, no, no. I think uh, Jeff's uh, guest has arrived, is he? Or, Jeff has a guest? <laughs> well, it, it wasn't his first off, so possibly going to come and uh, Oh, I missed that in. part if he was. Yeah, he was I think it's Dolp Friend Finder. Oh, he, no, he is right. He's, he's killed the aircon. That's what it was. Yeah, well done. Yeah, so, I yeah, love that. It uh, was, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Ah! Okay, <laughs> got it back off. So I love uh, Steph's comment. I'm not sure everybody heard it. Chew your own food. Yeah, Very I did clever. hear it. I chose to ignore it. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, sorry. I had to turn off the uh, air conditioner. Hey, look, I, had, I had to pay the, give my dentist the cost of a Mercedes to get these teeth put in. <laughs> so uh, let's not have any rude comments. Very nice most well, of them are Only one fell out afterwards. What's, the, <laughs> what's this? You know, they never tell you when you have an implant that, oh, well, actually, you might spend a lot of money on this implant, but there's a good chance it's going to fall out. Oh, nice. <laughs> Oh, Nothing is guaranteed in life, is it? No, particularly no. in the medical profession. <gasps> Did I say that? <gasps> oh, no, it's true. I spend most of my day telling people that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I just want you to sign this blood chip before I stick a mm -hmm. stamp you on the back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why they do call it practicing medicine. Oh, it's, yeah. It's <laughs> definitely <laughs> a... Uh, 
<laughs> More of an art. Oh, that was a cutting comment, Dana. No, it's true. It's true. I'm not even going to argue with that. <laughs> there's no reason to argue with it. I think I told it to someone today. Brilliant. <laughs> so that plain tail was a cheat because I don't need to do any uh, research to do one of those. So uh, whenever I'm short of time, like I was today, I, I'll I, I bang out one of those. But I, I've still got another uh, two and a half logbooks to go through. So nice. <laughs> there's plenty, plenty more to come. That should keep us going for a while. And I I love those. Actually, those oh, those well, plain tales. Very kind. Your well, personal I, I, experience. I, I say something. I was sitting downstairs with my uh, iPhone, with uh, listening to the YouTube version because I can't obviously listen from upstairs to downstairs on my computer. But uh, <clears throat> so Julie was sitting there, and we were having a quick dinner uh, in, in that little break, and she commented on how fantastic Nick is of a storyteller. She said, "Did he actually live through this?" And this is what he did, and I said, "Yep, that's his experience in life. It's it's amazing." And she was absolutely uh, floored at how awesome that story was and how well you presented it. Well, so. tell her she's a lovely lady, and thank you very much indeed, um, Jeff. Uh, I'm going to have to do things tomorrow, and it's yeah. half past midnight. So I, think I hope you, you won't mind if I uh, leave you guys to deal with the rest of the feedback. I was hoping you would want to leave, actually. <laughs> no, I'm I was praying. Yeah, okay. I'd prefer if you stayed, but I understand. If you have yeah, to we we all yeah. would prefer, but we understand. So, yeah, get out of I, here. Go get some. Yeah, sleep. okay, brilliant, lovely, lovely guys, and I'll uh, look forward to uh, seeing you again next week. All the best. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, 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 Nick. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, with that, I think we should move on with our feedback, and the next one on the list is from our good friend Stephen Ivy, and he has some feedback regarding the CRJ. Oh, wait a minute. As usual, after I do a plain tale, I diminish the volume with the uh, sliders. So That's okay. Nobody wants to hear what Steve had to say anyways. Yeah. yeah that, was, that was great, Steve. Thank you. All right. Here we go. Hey, APG crew, uh, FO Steven here. I uh, wanted to leave some audio feedback for y'all. Um, I know the past couple weeks y'all had hit on some subjects such as air stairs, crosswind limitations, and uh, dealing with flying different variants of the same aircraft and all that. Uh, so I wanted to just uh, give you some feedback about uh, my airplane that I fly around. I fly the... Uh, Candair regional jet, the 200, 700, and 900 series of that aircraft. Um, I primarily fly the 200 right now, but I do occasionally fly the 709 as well. But uh, probably the most recognizable thing about the uh, ZRJ series of aircraft is the main land, or not the main landing, or the uh, main cabin door with built-in air stairs. That's kind of the signature on all the ZRJ series aircraft that was originally uh, designed as the Ch Challenger Regional Jet, or Challenger Business Jet, now is known as the Canada Regional Jet. Um, so you, the three variants I fly again are the 200, the 700, the 900. Um, the 200 first came around in the uh, mid-90s. Um, it was meant to replace uh, the turboprop aircraft that regional airlines were using and to um, 
just, you know, get people there a little bit faster and all that. Um, of course, if any of you have flown the CRJ200, you do know that there are some things that are not that great about it. Uh, from a passenger standpoint, the bathroom in the back is really tiny. Uh, the seat uh, pitch is very tiny as well. And then the most important thing, the windows do not align with your uh, eye level. You kind of have to look down and squat your head down, you know. It's kind of gets painful after a while. Um, and then for pilots, there's a kind of a list of things that kind of aren't that great about the uh, 200 series aircraft. Um, main thing being that um, everything is manual as far as bleed systems go um, and electrics go so you have to manually turn or push buttons to engage or swap your bleeds and then um, for your first flight of the day when you're testing all the uh, emergency stuff there's individual switches you have to hit instead of one button that tests everything so it's just, it's just time to just a little nuisance um, and then the other thing about the 200 is that the um, air condition packs leave a lot to be desired. Generally, if it gets to be above 75, it can't cool the cabin down on the ground by itself unless you got both engines running with a little bit of power in, and even then, it kind of struggles to cool everybody down. Um, and then also, the, um, when the 200 first came out, which was actually the 100, but they're not really around anymore, so the 200. Um, the original engines didn't really have a whole lot of power, so it struggled to uh, climb and make speed and all that. So they came out with a different variant of the engine, which is the 3 Bravo 1, and that's what's currently on almost all CRJ200s. And uh, it gives you a little bit better performance, still climbs really bad. Generally, once we get above 20,000 feet, and if we're really heavy, we're lucky to see 1,000 feet a minute. Anything above 25, you're lucky to see 500. And if you have your anti-ice system on, the wings um, especially, uh, you are lucky to see 200 feet a minute. So, yeah. Um, and then there's another issue with the 200 is when you're uh, coming in for your approach and um, it's winter, you know, you're picking up icing. You've got the wings on, so you've got to leave the power up above 80% um, to power up your uh, wing anti-ice system. So that means that you're usually going to have your descent with the spoilers out while you have the power up. Kind of counterintuitive, but um, until you can get low enough to get the APU on, you kind of have to do that. Um, other than that, uh, the 200 also doesn't have a leading edge device, which means we are a D category on the approaches, uh, so we come in pretty hot. Uh, and we also don't come in like your traditional airliner. We don't kind of come in like at that nose-up angle, you know, coming down to the runway. We kind of point down at the runway, and then when we get above 50 feet, we'll pull the power out and then pitch up about 2 or 3 degrees, let the airspeed bleed off, and just kind of roll it on. That trailing that gear that's on board. Um, so that's the 200, um, and then the 709 are pretty much the same airplane with some minor differences. Um, obviously, they hold more people because they're larger aircraft, um, they have bigger wingspans, um, and then they also have a forward cargo bin uh, to put valet bags on for stuff that can't fit in the overheads. 
Um, and then with the 900, you have the Ford Lav um, as well, which is actually not that big, and it's kind of aggravating to use personally. But anyway, um, it's also got a bigger galley space for the flight attendants and all that. Um, with the 709, um, Bombardier uh, upgraded a lot of the systems, and so it made a lot of things automatic, such as the bleed system, the electrical system, and then your um, fire test equipment also is uh, simplified too, where you just push one button and it'll run the test for you and all that. And then also the APU has uh, been upgraded to where it's um, a lot more uh, dependable and it actually has logic in it where it will shut itself down once you get both engines up and running, which is kind of nice. Um, and then, uh, the other major difference between the 200 and the 709 is that they have leading edge devices, which, um, for the 7 takes you down to a C category on your approaches, and then the 900 is still a D because it's heavier and leading edge devices actually, um, don't do a whole lot for it for, um, lift and all that kind of still acts as a 200, um, with the only, uh, difference being that you are going to have that nose up pitch. That's for the seven to nine bow fuel actually be pitching up now instead of pointing down at the runway. Um, so that goes into flying all three variants. Um, how hard is it going back and forth? It's, um, it's not hard. The main thing is remembering, if you're in the 200, you have to swap the bleeds. And then if you're in the 709, not to point down at the runway when you're landing. Because if you do that, you'll um, smash the nose gear into the ground. And then you'll just have a really bad day. Um, so remembering to keep the nose up in the 709. And then with the 200, pitching down and swapping the bleeds. And that's um, really the only big differences between the three. Um, obviously, the 709, they've got bigger engines because they're a larger aircraft performance is better um both aircraft um when you get above uh 30, feet you can't climb but at a certain rate because the pressurization can't keep up with your climb rate um and then when they're both empty they're just awesome aircraft to fly to the 79 are like rocket ships taking off empty it's kind of a cool thing um but uh, one last thing about the CRJ series of aircraft, and this kind of surprised me too. Um, you know, every aircraft has got a crosswind limitation and all that. Well, the CRJ series of aircraft, uh, particularly the 200, um, if you ever look at them, they're kind of close to the ground as far as the wingtips. I believe it's right at five feet is your clearance between the wingtip and the ground. So when you're coming in the land, um, you can't have any crab in because if you've got too much in, you'll drag a wingtip and then bad things will happen. So at my airline, we're not allowed to land in any kind of crab. You have to have the plane straightened out with the wings level when you sit it down, um, which is a challenge some days. Um, so the airline I work for uh, goes with Bombardier's uh, recommendation, which is the max demonstrated, demonstrated is 25 knots. Now, if you go look at our SOPM and you go look at our performance cards on the 200 specifically, it clearly states that this is not a limitation. Yes. So 25 knots demonstrated is not a limitation. That's just what's demonstrated. So um, when you're going through your recurrent, 
and everything. They kind of see how high you can get your crosswinds up to. Um, when you initially go through your um, check ride, getting your type rating, um, you've got a 35 knot crosswind you've got to be able to land in as an FO, um, which, you know, is pretty. I mean, I had difficulties with it. I still have difficulties with it, but um, I think anybody would have difficulties with 35 knot crosswind not being able to crab into it. But um, I've, I'm limited to 20 knots um, just because I'm an FO and they don't, you know, this is the limitation for the FO is 20 knots. The captains, on the other hand, um, do not have a limitation at all. It's kind of what they feel comfortable with. And uh, that same demonstrated applies to all three variants. And it actually, you're not in as big of a danger um, with the 7 and 9 because you're further off the ground with the wingtips, but you still have that 25 knot demonstrated, but it's not a limitation, so... Anyway, uh, that's uh, basically it. Um, all I can think about about the CRJ, kind of rattling on about stuff. But anyway, um, just catch up with me. Not flying a whole lot. Uh, reserve in Atlanta is, um, yeah, it's kind of not a lot going on, um, especially when the weather's good and everything. Um, so I've been sitting at home. Um, catching up on life stuff, but um, I'll be going back to Chicago in June uh, to get some more flying and get my hours in and also have a little bit more variety in the flying instead of the um, all the cities we go to out of Atlanta, which are not very many. Not only that, be able to fly the 7 and the 900, um, which will be nice because summer is coming and air condition is great. But uh, anyway, hope everybody is doing well and uh, y'all take care. Thank you, Steve and Ivy, for all that great information regarding the CRJ. It's interesting about the demonstrated crosswind and uh, it not being a limitation at ACME. The <clears throat> certification demonstrated crosswind limits or crosswind, whatever, not limits, um, are limits uh, for us. And uh, so... Uh, on the Mad Dog, for instance, it's 30 knots. And, you know, if, if the winds are above that crosswind, we're not allowed to attempt a landing. But it's interesting that with the CRJ, you can, you know, there's no limitation at all, apparently, with the uh, captains. I honestly don't remember. Yeah. Uh, it's been too long for me. <clears throat> I remember it was 25 knots. I remember that, but I don't remember... If it's an actual limitation or was yeah. a limitation to the company or not. I do know that there are, there are some airlines here in the U.S. and probably around the world that um, the demonstrated crosswind is is not considered a limitation. It's just Well, it's the maximum demonstrated crosswind. Yeah. When they you know, certify it. You can it, exceed it. You're just the test pilot at that point. Right. But. But for the company Acme, that you work for. My yes. company. Yeah. We they can are, treat it as an absolute a, limitation. Yeah, we, can, sure. we cannot be a test pilot. Yeah, unless you want to Probably just for good hang reason. it out there and hope that everything goes well. But if something goes wrong, then good luck. Good luck. Good stuff, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, uh, great information. And um, hope that uh, everything works out for you uh, getting back to the Chicago base in June. Um, I, I got to uh, have coffee with Stephen um, a few weeks back in Atlanta. And uh, as he mentioned, not getting used a lot in Atlanta. So he's 
looking forward yeah, to hopefully that'll be getting back to Chicago and flying a little bit more. Yeah, I mean it's that's a double edged sword. I mean, commuting is lousy, but you know, when you're at the regional level, you don't want to be sitting around waiting. Uh, you want to be building your your experience and flight hours so that way you can hopefully move on to bigger and better things. So good choice, Stephen. Go get some flying in and uh um, great information on that, RJ. I never got to fly the two, uh, the the seven hundred or the nine hundred. The two hundred, uh, I agree with everything he said. Uh, the only thing is, I flew the Brazilian before the two hundred, so the air conditioning in the two hundred was far superior. And I think over the years, too, the the uh, the uh, uh, wear and tear on those aircraft um, certainly have taken their toll. So they're not as as young and sprightly as they used to be, and uh, you know, the air conditioning system probably has some abuse in it and some of the uh, some of the uh, filters may not be cleaned as often as they should. So that way they, you know, have better air. But I remember the AC on that 200 being pretty good when I was there, especially uh, in Dallas and Atlanta area. What is uh, this air conditioning that you're speaking of? I'm not sure I... Uh, you, you, I love when guys complain about the air conditioning on the 88. <laughs> I love it. <clears throat> I remember having to take my tie off and pretty much take off my my yeah. pilot shirt. Yeah, it's it's not great on the uh, Mad Dog, but uh, it could be much much worse. And you're right, Dana. I laugh yep. though. I when I get on the airplane, when I was the first officer, now I'm captain. How in the world do people want to complain about it not being air conditioned up there when they turn off all the vents and leave them off? Yeah, that's wow. the first problem. What vents? What? Exactly. <laughs> the three vents that I close every single time. Oh, vents. I heard something totally different. Uh, yeah, vent. V-E-N-T. <laughs> the, um, so the Cirrus actually has pretty decent air conditioning, and you can leave it running basically the whole time. We don't care about your thinking Cirrus airplane stuff. It's lovely. And it's great air conditioning system. It has air and conditioning. And autopilot. Oh, yeah. It has air conditioning. It has air conditioning. Yeah. And it actually does cool things down. Uh, you know what I love? I love when you read these reports from passengers and yeah, we were sitting on the, um, on the runway, you know, on the which, tarmac. Yeah. Or the runway. runway. I love, you know, yeah. er, everything out there is a runway. Yeah. We Run were on the runway and, um, the pilots turned the air conditioning off for like two hours. Uh, don't think so. You know, we kind of like to be comfortable too. Why would we do that? Doesn't make any sense. You're just mean. Yeah, that's why. We have our own little air conditioning system up in the cockpit, and then we just turn it off and let you guys all suffer back in the back. <clears throat> anyway, well, thanks again, Stephen, for that. And uh, let's skip to 12. And we have uh, some audio feedback from controller LUD. Hello there, APG crew, Captain Jeff, Captain Dana, Captain Nick, Dr. Steph, and all the APG community. It's controller Vlad from Moscow, Russia, your longtime listener. And uh, I, as always, I just wanted to thank you for your great podcast. You keep me entertained and educated and motivate me to learn new things every day and your podcast is essentially a part of my life at this point so and uh, as a feedback i wanted to to ask a question about 
the approach clearances that you receive from ATC. And uh, especially uh, the phrase like cleared ILS approach runway so and so. What what does it mean to you as a pilot? Uh, maybe maybe you have your own explanation, your definition. Since I heard so many different variants from controllers, from pilots, and it it seems that there is no clear unified understanding of this clearance, clearance, clear dialysis approach or cleared VOR approach. So, uh, I am. Ideally, I'm hoping you could point me to some ICAO document that that would clearly explain what does this phrase mean. So, uh, again, just looking forward to your reply and thanks for your great job. Cheers. Now, Vlad, <clears throat> I have to say, I'm not going to be upset with you, but uh, it, it seems that you're kind of two-timing us here at the APG because I was listening to Opposing Bases episode number 74, which is the latest episode, and uh, you you sent in feedback asking the same question. Busted. Busted. You know, do you think we're, we're not listening to other aviation podcasts? Did they answer his question before us? They did, well, didn't they? Well, here's the good news. They answered the question regarding the U.S., uh, air traffic controller's mm -hmm. point of view. But he specifically was asking for ICAO and other, you know, European or other than the U.S. information. So I have to tell you, you came to the right place. And <laughs> so um, I thought to myself, hmm, I don't really know the definitive answer, but I know somebody that will know the answer. And this gentleman's name is Adam Adam Spink, and uh, he's one of the supervisors at the Heathrow Air Traffic Control Tower. And uh, he got back to me right away. Thank you, Adam. And he said, from ICAO document 4444, which is Procedures for Air Traffic Management, 8.9.4, Vectoring to Pilot Interpreted Final Approach Aid, 8.9.4.1, an aircraft Vectored, vectored to intercept a pilot intercepted, excuse me, a pilot interpreted final approach aid shall be instructed to report when established on the final approach track. Clearance for the approach should be issued prior to when the aircraft reports established unless circumstances preclude the issuance of the clearance at such time. Vectoring will normally terminate at that time. The aircraft leaves the last assigned heading to intercept the final approach track. And uh, 8.9.4.2, when clearance for the approach is issued, aircraft shall maintain the last assigned level until intercepting the specified or nominal glide path of the approach procedure. If ATC requires an aircraft to intercept the glide path at a level other than a level flight segment depicted on the instrument approach chart, ATC shall instruct the pilot to maintain the particular level until established on the glide path. And then... Of course, that's, again, from ICAO document 4444, which is Procedures for Air Traffic Management. And he uh, adds, in the UK, we had a series of incidents in the 70s and 80s where aircraft would be cleared ILS approach, and they would immediately descend to the height of the final approach fix at which the published ILS approach procedure begins, uh, 2,500 feet for 
uh, Heathrow, for example, even at 15 to 20 nautical miles out. This was a problem because we would have helicopter and fixed-wing traffic flying 1,000 feet under the final approaches, assuming the aircraft would be at least 3,000 feet over the top. In the UK, we now have several options to mitigate this. Number one, ask the arriving aircraft to report localizer established and only then give a clearance to descend on the ILS. Two, on intercept heading, give a conditional clearance, such as when established, descend on the ILS. Or three, only if the aircraft has already been given descent to the altitude of the final approach fix, we just say cleared ILS. So there you go. There's some uh, ICAO information regarding what it means when an air traffic controller gives the uh, clearance for an approach. And, you know, in, in thinking about that, Jeff, even here when we're, when we're arriving into our lovely Atlanta airport, uh, which, by the way, I'm, I'm very prejudiced. They are among some of the best controls, I think, out there. Um, they give us pretty much the same type of clearance. They'll declare you to intercept the localizer, and then they'll clear you for the ILS approach. So it's a very similar type of yes. procedure. And we've had problems. I mean, all of the... Um, Airlines in the U.S. have had issues with um, people given, you know, clearances for an approach, and then the pilots um, putting in the final approach fix altitude and descending way out to the final approach fix altitude. And you know, data, you know what I'm talking about. Where right. you know this can really, you know, be a problem when you're flying at night in mountainous terrain when, you know, you have to pay attention to the minimum vectoring altitudes, the minimum safe altitudes, the uh, approach segment altitudes, et cetera. You can't just sure. dial in the final approach fix altitude and assume you're going to be, you know, um, okay to descend to that altitude. But, uh, um, yeah, that's, that is what the uh, interpretation is of, you know, when you're, when you're cleared for an approach, basically you're giving the pilot authorization to use his best judgment to interpret what he should be doing with his course and altitude uh, to fly the final approach segment. And you have to assume that they understand the limitations of the various altitudes. You can't just blindly put in the final approach fix altitude and descend to it because that can lead to issues. I agree with all of that. Absolutely. Now, you know, you fly in a place that's like in Florida where you don't have a lot of high terrain and you're probably going to be okay, you know, but uh, really, does it really make sense to, when you're that far out, to descend to the final approach fix altitude? I mean, I don't mm, think no. so. No, <laughs> no, not at all. Higher is better, all. I think. I mean, you're going to put yourself in the way of other... <clears throat> Traffic yeah. and you know the the, a, the smart thing in that case is either to use VNAV or if you know it, if you're lazy if you're smart you can you know, go ahead and make sure you you cross every restriction dial down the altitude to each restriction yeah. to make sure you cross those restrictions um, and as you mentioned it, if you are uh, I don't know twenty miles out and and you're getting glide slope, which you really shouldn't at that point. Let's say fifteen, be more realistic. Fifteen miles out, 
you know, depending on which airport you're at. Of course, land we get it quite far quite far out. But let's say you're you know up there and you get on the glide slope, but yet that glide slope goes below the minimum, minimum uh, step down altitude on the approach. You know, they could be trained there, as you, you mentioned. Yeah. So it's it's you, you, it's always to your benefit to fly the published uh, procedure. Period. Yeah. If it's if it's published, there's a reason for it. If it says to cross 15 miles at uh, you know 6,500 feet or 6,000 feet or whatever it says, you make sure you cross it at that altitude. Yeah. You, know, so you miss any any potential terrain out there or, or any obstructions. Yeah, most places, you know, if you just maintain whatever altitude you're at and intercept the glide slope, you're going to be okay. There are only a handful of places in the U.S. anyway where if you descend below that, uh, that you're going to be in trouble. But, um, you know, I always, you know, they, they say, you know, maintain this altitude until established or clear the approach. I just maintain whatever the altitude is that I'm at and I see the glide slope come down. I'll just wait for the glide slope to come down and then start down. Yep. Smart mm-hmm. to do. Yeah. Stay high. Higher or better, I'd say. High high to the flag, and then once you get the flag, then fly the flag. Yeah. As long as it doesn't have any restrictions on it. Okay. Well, between the Opposing Bases podcast and our podcast, I think that we did a good job of answering that question for controller vlad and i really think it's amazing and uh, just uh, very cool that we have people listening to this podcast in russia in fact in russia. I, yeah I, I asked vlad anyway uh to um i said hey you know i, I have re- like little snippets uh, little audio snippets of uh the names of some of the airports around the uh, moscow area which i never get right and uh rosa rosa Viatia, you know the uh, investigatory uh, agency for Russia. I said, could you like record yourself saying those things? So, uh, we do have that and, uh, I just Excellent. haven't prepared it yet, but we have our own APG community member, Vlad. Authentic um, Russian pronunciations. Oh, Liz says that she thinks that Vlad lives in Thailand. Oh, I thought he was in Moscow. Huh. Interesting. Thailand. That'd be a cool place to live. Okay. Uh, let's go with this next one and it might be the last Liz is directing us to, uh, do number 13 and probably end the show after this, uh, Colonel Jeff, uh, everybody knows him as the good looking captain Jeff. I kind of take offense to that, but I will, um, Jeff. Now I've landed with iguanas on the runway in San Juan as well as bald ego, egos, <laughs> bald eagles harvesting a turtle in Tampa, but a gator taking the runway, that's a bit much. And he gave us a link to SF Gate, San Francisco Chronicle, I believe, website. Alligator blocks runway at Air Force Base in Florida. And there's a picture here at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa. The staff at U.S. Air Force Base in Florida had to bring in a front loader. <laughs> to remove an alligator that was lounging on a runway. The Tampa Bay Times reports that the large reptile was spotted Tuesday morning at McDill Air Force Base flight line. The base shared a photo of the creature on Facebook saying that the friendly alligator was just preparing for takeoff. McDill spokesman 2nd Lieutenant Brandon Hanner says alligator sightings are common around the base, which is located on Tampa Bay. He says the alligator probably surfaced from one of the base's bodies of water. The Wing Safety Office's wildlife manager organized the animal's removal. 
scooping it into the bucket of the loader. At least the pieces of the alligator that were still... No, no. I think they successfully... Oh, the poor alligator. Yeah, I think the alligator was okay. They're tough animals, I think. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Colonel Jeff, for that. And with that, uh, we're going to have to end today's show. Um, unfortunately, and I'm, you know, I'm sad because... We had some really good feedback still remaining in our folder, but we're going to move that to the next show's folder. Uh, Tim, uh, the private pilot guy, sent us some audio feedback. Another Tim is a new listener on his journey to becoming an airline pilot. Uh, Swedish Gustav sent us a link to an article from USA Today regarding uh, our pilots losing their flying skills. And I'd say, yes. Um, and then also a wonderful, um, interesting interview that Micah recorded with APG community member Mark Roboff about artificial, artificial intelligence. So all that and more is going to be on our next show. So again, thank you for listening and subscribing to the podcast and giving us reviews on Apple Podcasts and whatever podcast client that you use to listen to our show and um, we have a wonderful website arash mahin is our website guru who uh, manages that and uh, there you can find information about the the crew the community the uh, you can go to the calendar and look at the apg apg community calendar and see what's going on as far as meetups are concerned remember we're going to be uh, in a very big way, uh, present at the uh, Oshkosh Air Venture 2019 in July. Um, and uh, we might be in your area as well. So please become an APG slacker. Hillel will tell us about that in a moment. Um, but uh, lots of good stuff on the website, including the APG library. Uh, our librarian, Tiffany, just added a new um, a new title to the long list of several great reads there and uh, so much more we also have apps for our ios and android smartphones and they're free and they're ad free so check those out and we're also on the social meds mm, the social meds head over to twitter twitter.com and our handle there is at APG Crew. You can find all of us participating there or tweet us individually. Our individual twi Twitter information is pinned to the top of that page. Was that individual Twitter information? That would be <laughs> not correct. Uh, <laughs> I like it though. I know. Just making up words left and right here today. <laughs> that's what I do. You could also head over to Facebook.com and that's Facebook.com slash Airline Pilot Guy. All kinds of amazing community interaction going on there. Uh, stories being shared, events being discussed. Um, and actually, we also have Instagram. So uh, just at APG Crew on Instagram. Yes, you are so correct. And hang on. So let's let's talk about Slack. Hello? Hello? Come over here. Okay. <laughs> wow, uh, his voice tell... is changing yeah. all the time. <laughs> tell us about Slack, okay? Okay. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. 
we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1. Hotel India, one one Echo one And see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. Now you can go back to wherever you were. And uh, we also want to thank our wonderful producer, assistant, Liz. Liz Piper in Toronto. Yay, I'm looking for the applause. Where is it? I can't find it. Here it is. She does so much. She does so much uh, behind the scenes. Thank you, Liz, for all your hard work and dedication to the success of this podcast. And finally, until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. God bless. Cheers, y'all. Aloha. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day.